My name is Richard Löwenstein and you are listening to the Scene World podcast. It's the Scene World podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm AJ. Exactly. Your is right there. I'm pointing again I... like people can see me. I keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should make it like a guessing game. Will be the next podcast video or audio only? It, it, it is a guessing game for me because usually 10 minutes before we start, I say, Are, is this audio or video? But I tell you this every time we discuss our you, guests you know, and you I never remember that. pay attention to anything in my life. Uh, nice. <laughs> All right. So, um... In just a sec, we're going to be talking to Jason Scott from archive.org. Um, so that's going to be... Pretty cool. He's a he's one we've been looking forward to for a while. So that's in just a little bit. Uh, we have a few pieces of news before we get to that, our obligatory news section. So. Exactly. So let's start with Amiga 34 happened in Neuss, Germany. Noise. Exactly. <laughs> And there was also, among many other people, Mike Badalana. And he spoke a lot. From Cloanto. This is Mike Batalana from Cloanto, who is exactly. one of the current disputed Amiga rights owners. And yeah. Yeah. So he held a speech on the stage. And this speech received a summary of the speech from the Amiga-news.de. And... They also link to a YouTube video where there is a recording. But I suggest to everybody, activate the closed captions for the video because the audio quality is pretty bad. And um, there he spoke about the current situation of the Amiga rights. Right, which is that um, I guess Cloanto has um, acquired most of it now. Probably, yeah. So you, you talked to him at Gamescom a bit. I did it briefly, yes. I said, like, I'm happy that we are not part of this <laughs> of this battle because <laughs> fortunately we got an um, open source solution that works. We got actually support in, <clears throat> in putting the Amiga issues together from Rupert, who is the coder of the script Amiga emulator. Right. So, and I always forget the name of the OS that we are using as an alternative. It's, isn't it Arrows? Arrows, exactly. Yeah, yeah. For for, and, for um, reference, for, you know, for the listeners that um, may not know, we have, we currently have an Amiga version of the magazine. Um, we want to put this online so that people can access it and watch, you know, look at it within a web browser. And the issue that we had is that... Um, The rights for Amiga are spread everywhere. Some, you know, one company owns the rights to the uh, Kickstart. Another company owns the rights to the Amiga OS software. I know another person owns the rights to whatever. And 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 finding some way to implement this in a web browser, um, which doesn't infringe on somebody's copyright, was was I mean it, it was an it, it was a challenge, and it took us quite a long time to track down and figure out some way to, to do this. Interestingly, we spoke to all parties and mm -hmm. all parties gave us permissions, but they also said like, if something happens with that permission, then you might be sued by the other party right. instead. Right. Yep. 
So there was no way to um, to be sure that we are not getting into trouble, despite we got an agreement from all sides that yeah. they are fine with giving us a license. Right. So we found and a way. And we discussed it. about this. We discussed about this internally, and our Oliver Six he had to modify the magazine system a bit, though it wouldn't crash, and support arrows. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and we are not the only one with the problem. Um, um, Richard Löwenstein from Reshoot R is having the exact yeah. same issue mm-hmm. because he told me at Noise that he wants to make his um, game compatible with the web browser version. And the game crashes for him, and right. he has to change code in the game to make it not crashing on Eros anymore. Right, right. So we are not the only ones having this issue. Mm-hmm. Well, Eros isn't an exact; it's it's like a fork of Amiga OS, and it was a, the Amiga Research Operating System or something to that effect. And uh, so it's similar, but it's not quite the same. So if you're gonna if you're going to adapt your software for it, you have to modify it a little bit so that it works within the framework. Just the same as if you were trying to, you know, go from Amigo, you know, uh, Kickstart 1.3 to 3.1 or whatever, you know. There's a yeah. whole list of things you got to worry about. And well, the good thing is, the good thing is we have nice people, gel, um, knowledgeable people, and so we we got this we got this fixed. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah. And um, Rupert Hausberger, who is the um, author of the scripted Amiga emulator, he helped us a lot. Yeah. And this is so great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got one here from... Uh, there's been a conversion underway of um, Eye of the Beholder. Um, wow! I don't know if you uh, are you. Do you know that this, this game? It's a um, of course. Yeah. So this has been. It, it was on Amiga. It was on a couple of different platforms, but it never quite made the jump to the sixty-four. And for a while, it was kind of um, a lot of people thought that it was a little too technical and a little bit too um, that the sixty-four just wasn't up to the challenge. Uh, but Andreas Larson is a developer that is working on this. This has been going on for quite a while. It's been about a year since we've heard anything. Um, as of November 3rd, however, they said that he said that the um, he, he was on Twitch uh, showing version 0.91 of the game. So it's a, still a wow. beta, but he's he's testing it. He's trying to find some bugs and that's, there's some controls that are not there yet. But the game looks freaking amazing, and I mean, it looks. I I almost want to jump to the statement that it. I've played it on the Amiga, and I actually think it looks nicer on the sixty four than it did on the Amiga. Mm. Well, there are a lot of games that were told to be impossible. The most prominent example would be Lemmings. Really, Lemmings. Yes, because of 100 sprites moving, impossible. Yeah, yeah. And even coding this thing on um, on the uh, C64 is impossible. Yeah. So what they did is actually there's a whole uh, three-parted diary um, from SAP64 where the developers wrote how they did it. 
And they actually did it by connecting two Amigas hmm. in, a, in a little network. Interesting. And with the combined Amiga resources of two Amigas, they were able to develop Emmings for the C64. Hmm. So they created their own developing system. Hmm, very interesting. Um, we'll put a link yeah. to the um, this uh, the beta testing, the live beta testing of of Eye of the Beholder. Uh, it's and to the Lemmings. Yes. Yep. Diary story because it's so interesting yeah. to read and it looks really good and it, it, it's even got like the soundtrack is there. I mean everything looks really really nice on it. So I am looking forward to seeing that come out. And the interesting thing is Lemmings is the last commercial game that was released in the yeah. mainstream market. I know. 94. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's – and also the the last game where Jeroen Tell did commercial music. That's right. For the Commodore 64. That's right. Um, I also want to point out there is currently on Kickstarter – there's a new Kickstarter. As of today, there's 29 days left in it. Um, it is for an upgrade, a mechanical keyboard for the Amiga 500 or 600 or 1200. Um, it, it is, who is this project by? I don't know, Micronics. Um, Never heard, but I, then I'm not big in I the haven't Amiga. either. Currently, as of this time, they're searching, they're, they're looking for... Um, um, their goal is seventy thousand Australian dollars, mm. which is about forty-eight thousand American dollars. Um, of that seventy thousand dollars, they've raised about eight. So, but I mean, you know, we're a day into it, so this is not unusual. Um, but it does look interesting, and this will, if they can make this, if they can, if they can do it. Um, it's going to give you uh, standard Cherry MX compatible switches, um, standard keycaps for these switches, and, and it'll so it'll be a pretty big update over the Amiga keyboard. Which Commodore keyboards are not fantastic, um, and especially I lost them. It, it 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 depends. Like like the I I am a fan of the Commodore 128 keyboard. Uh, the Commodore 128 keyboard is beautiful to work with. The 64 keyboard I was never a fan of because it's like, it's like you know where, whereas typing on a, on a 128 is a delicate waltz, um, typing on a C64 is road construction. You know, it's never very, had a problem with it. It's never very very. It's very heavy, and you know you got a well, really... typewriter keyboard. Yes, that is... exactly. That's exactly that is what, what it is. Wanted. That's that is exactly what, what it is. The Amiga had two different keyboards, from what I am, from what I understand. One is a very 128-like keyboard with the springs and all that stuff, which is okay. The other one, which is the one that I have, is just it's got little rubber cups. Mm. That and it's it does not feel as responsive as. You know, I would want it. And an upgrade to that, we've seen upgrades to the 64 and 128 keyboards, you know, um, um, Lau, Lau Brex, Bricks. yes, with his MechBoard 64. And, you know, there, there's, and there's other solutions for the Amiga. There's an add on where you can plug in a USB keyboard or a wireless keyboard to mm -hmm. it and use that. But to actually have like 
a mechanical real keyboard in the machine that is nice would be would be really neat and i would enjoy that and it would make it would make typing on it um much more fun than it has been for me Mm. great so we'll put a link to that everyone should check that out if you're interested in it um you should back it right now again it's got 68 backers we're at um a small fraction of the actual goal but again it's only a day or two into it so um check it out it ends on december 4th and hopefully um yeah maybe it'll be done maybe we should talk to those guys that'll be interesting right (laughs) then then i let you do the talking yeah 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 Oh, that's good. Yes. I'm not a baby. So, so anyway, other news. Um, Paul Gardner Steven was actually a guest in the second Brotkastenfreunde podcast. Oh. And he got the chance to speak. He's German. For nice. Once, awesome. Which he always complained he isn't allowed to when he's talking to the team. Because they are English, despite um, they are based in Germany. <laughs> but yeah. it's the same for, for us in Scene World. I always say to people, oh, do it in English, even if the Germans do isn't, something. Isn't Paul because, Australian, though? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. You can hear it. Yeah, yeah. But I couldn't understand it. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that's cool. Uh, that's, you know, from the Mega 65, I... I still love the Mega 65. We'll put a link to that podcast so everyone can listen to it. And I yeah. still, you know. Must have been three by now or something. What's that? Or two episodes. I think two episodes. Yeah, we did two episodes. Yeah, we did, we did a, an original. We did the interview with yeah. uh, them yeah. originally. And then we did a follow-up. I would like exactly. to do, I'd love to do another one. Um, but you Maybe just next year. He was, on a, he was on a different podcast talking in German. So we'll put a link to that one yeah. where people exactly. can hear it. And Exactly. You know, and maybe maybe when they are closer to the release. Yeah, yeah. And everybody that that listens should probably send him an email saying that they should send me a Mega sixty five. <laughs> send it to podcast at sceneworld.org yes, because yes. I want one too. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, um, so a little bit on the sad side, our contributor from the last issue, Hugo Lerara. Yes, Hugo. Yeah. Also called Hilerner seventy eight. Unfortunately, he died because of an accident. Yes, on, uh, on October seventeenth of of twenty nineteen this year, just a little bit ago. Exactly, and um, I took an effort to collect all the info I could get from the Peruvian Amiga. C64 Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. So I got I got um, photos from the last meeting that he, he lo- that he allowed us to link to from the homepage. That's also part of the remembering page right. of him. And yeah, and also I preserved a live stream that he um, posted on Facebook at the last meeting at his home in September. Right. That can all be found on his memorial page on 8bitlegends.com. Yeah, we'll put a link to that, of course, so that everyone can check it out. He was a 
a good guy, and he was working on getting a uh, a uh, a scene party or gathering or something happening down in in Peru. Yeah. Yeah, he did it. He did it actually in uh, March. Yeah. And then a small one at his home in September. Right. Unfortunately, he was in the process of getting a new running C64. He just got a new drive and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so that's a big. It's a. It's a loss. It's. It's definitely a loss for the 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 scene in general because, and especially for the for the South American, um, the the scene because, you know, there's, there's not too many people in that part of the world that are are really active as far as as far as this silly thing that we do you know and yeah and he was one of the one of the uh pushers big names yeah one of the really active people that was really into this and excited about it and 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 to lose him is is kind of a it's a big hit for that part of this uh part of the scene we actually spoke about that with Slopsang Alvitas in yeah. the in the third podcast we mm -hmm. did, and we actually talked about um, the history of how that all happened to be, and how things got inactive. Right. And back then we spoke about the possibility to make a meeting with all those guys again, and um, Hugo was actually the one that took over this idea and made it happen. So I hope there will somebody else from this um, Peruvian side of the scene and continue his efforts. Th that would be great. Yeah, and of course our thoughts and and you know our condolences are with his his family and and friends. Made me really sad. Yeah, especially yeah. that's the way it um, happened to be. It's sad when anybody you know when anybody passes but you know especially when they're and, and, and i didn't know the guy i you know i've never spoken to him but just from what i could tell from from the interactions with the magazine and with what he's been doing he was a good guy and he was really um he will be he'll be missed it's a it's a it's a sad day yeah so which reminds me about that next year we are 20 years scene world and a lot of people that we interviewed and spoke to are already dead, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I've got a thing here about... Oh, maybe we should mention uh, one of our own news. We released recently a YouTube video with the Swiss developer for Amiga Games. He worked on games for Starbite also. Roman Werner... Yes. And um, I think this is a really very nice interview because he spoke about how the first Amiga virus happened to be, <laughs> how it was working with the Germans, all the problems with conversions Atari games to the Amiga. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he is a great storyteller and... Um, it goes in the same realms like Mike Clark, which right. is one of our most famous interviews because Mike Clark is also a big storyteller yeah. from Psychosis and all. And Roman Werner is also a very, very good storyteller here. Hmm. So don't miss it. It's, of course, the shortcut URL is scene.world slash Roman Werner. Cool, yep. 
And speaking of, you know, you mentioned uh, the Atari. Um, speaking of that, there's a guy here. There's a, there's a, it's, okay. Yeah. No, well, yeah. well, over here, over there, that, that okay. way. Um, <laughs> his name is Tony P. That sounds icky. I don't really, I guess what we're looking at is a replacement SID. It's called the ST SID. It's a board. It features stereo or dual SID, dual pin PWM, 5-bit plus 5. I don't know what I'm reading. MIDI in out. While, um, that it looks makes like, sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't exactly know what I'm looking at. It looks like it's a replacement SID. Um, he says, you know, there's through holes, so you can actually stack another SID. It's, so it's an emulation of... It's a SID emulator. For the Atari? No, uh, for, for the, the... Six, I think it's for the 64. So, yeah, it's another alternative to the SID. You know, I, I mentioned Atari, but I, that might just be nonsense because I've, it's not It's not really... I, I'm, I'm guessing that it's... Where does it say what it's based on? The one pay to paste in uh, waiting all, loop music. The, yeah, I, honestly, we should because, <laughs> because it's not <laughs> it's not really explained very well. It, okay, so it's a 16 megahertz um, STM 8S003K3T with 8K of flash memory, 1K of RAM, and 120 bytes EEPROM. Um, so it's an emulator for the SID. There's really not much. I don't see any any um demos of how it works i don't see much about anything about it other than that the guy is selling it and and it's it's there's no website for it. it's he's got he posted on lemon on the lemon forums about it and that's about all there is is just hey you want to buy this thing i'm making it and this is how the RM one hundred twenty eight started. Yeah, yeah. With posts on lemon. Yeah, selling them at twenty nine dollars. Once they're for sale, um, mm. but there's no, but there's no like you know I I, I can't put there's there's nothing showing how well it emulates it or how well it sounds or what it sounds like at all. Um, Surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I don't know what else to say about that. Is that it's. It's there, um, but I don't know how good it is, and I don't know what you do, do you, with it. Do, do you remember the first uh, SID replacement, so the Swin SID, yeah. with the flying wires, uh-huh. and the examples to download from Rob Hubbard's Formula 1 and so on? Yeah, yeah. Everybody was like, wow, this sounds like bullshit, uh-huh. and now we're having SID replacements all over uh-huh. the place. Uh-huh. Yep. And now nobody says, um, oh, it's bullshit. Now everybody says, like, oh, I want one. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. How this whole perspective has changed. Yeah. Yep. Incredible. Um, here's another one, which is really kind of cool. Um, I, did I, I don't know if I talked about this last time. I may have. Did we talk about the Vic 2 2? No. Or the Vic 2 squared, I guess, actually would be the... Never heard of that. So, okay, so Perifractic from Retro Recipes um, has, has, has worked together with um, Sean Harrington, also known as One Stage, to build a board. Uh, it is called the Vic 2 2, or Vic 2 squared, you know, the little tiny 2 next to the 2. 
And what this does is it allows you to switch your 64 between NTSC and PAL. Nice. You'll, you need a an NTSC um, VIC-2 and a PAL and a VIC-2. Um, it only works, uh, it's only been tested, rather, on certain revisions. It's got to be a longboard, and there are certain revisions of longboard that it works on. Um, it hasn't been tested on others. Well, that's sounding like something I would want. Mm-hmm. Because when I want NTSC, I have to go to my S sixty four NTSC or swap my whole computer. Yeah, and I feel like we were just talking about this not long ago, where we were last year. Yeah, where last we were saying year. that it shouldn't be. It it doesn't seem like it should be hard to switch to to kind of put something in there to switch your your sixty four from PAL to NTSC. I did a very very detailed blog post on my blog about it with mm-hmm. an example video. Of how it's done, right, right, and and that's so we to, can link to that. Yes, and and yeah. I did that with mine too. I I I, I converted my NTSC sixty four to PAL and then back again because I I you know didn't have a PAL screen to play it on, but um, but the idea that there should be a way to kind of put a switch in that would allow you to kind of swap between the two seemed kind of a no brainer to me, but no one had ever Shut done it. Shut up and take my money. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. And now that one exists, although it doesn't, it's not for every revision of the machine. And that doesn't matter. I have so many of right. them. And from what I gather, I don't know if it's because it won't work on a short board or on a 64C, but I do know that it won't fit in the case of the 64C. Well, that problem can be resolved yes, also. Exactly. So, anyway, anyway, that's some, some sounding totally like something I want to have. Yes. Yes. It does seem really, really cool. And we'll link to the video where they put it together. And I don't know if it's for sale yet. I imagine. I think it is. But, yeah, so we'll... Wow. Yeah, we'll put that in there so everyone can check that out. <laughs> for the grace of God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I got. Have you got anything else? I, I guess we are fine. Okay. After we've edited out all our confusion and looking at the up, names and this stuff. This thirty minute intro will be like ten. Eight, eight minutes long, yeah. Mm. So um yeah, so having finished everything off then, Jason Scott is waiting over there. He's been dil- diligently archiving things this whole time that we've been talking. And again, I'm very impressed that he hasn't been just throwing things at us and yelling it for taking too long. But he has a lot of patience. He is, he is. He's very he's very patient. So let's uh let's go and uh and and get into archive ing. I love archive ing. <laughs> so <clears throat> today we are speaking to Jason Scott in the podcast. Hello Jason. Why hello there. You are um from archive.org. Yeah, these days, that's how most people think of me. And we also have as guest moderator here, Martin Wisnowski, our guy from Cologne, and AJ, who everybody knows already, and of course me from Mannheim, Germany. So, yeah, well, Jason, let's start a bit. How did you actually start to get involved into computers and all that kinky stuff? 
<laughs> oh. Well, my father worked for IBM in the 1960s and 70s. And in the 1970s, they were experimenting with this whole home computer thing. Do we want to get into this business? And one of the side effects of that was that they brought a lot of home computers from other companies like Commodore and Atari and had them lying around. And once they looked at them, they were done with them. So my father would bring all of them home for me to try out. And I was like eight or nine at the time. And there are three of us, three kids of my father's. And I was the one who said, this is amazing. I've got to get in on this. So as soon as the actual IBM PC came out in the early 1980s, I got one from my father and uh, also a modem. And that put me on the road to bulletin board systems, collecting software, programming. And then somewhere in my 20s was where I became a professional system administrator. I uh, worked at a game company and I also got involved in, you know, all the consumer side where you're taking care of other people's machines for money until about 2010 when I got out of being a system administrator, still had my sanity, and an opportunity came up to work for the Internet Archive. And I started there in 2011, and I've been there ever since. So that's the, that's the light overview. Yeah. So you mentioned bulletin board systems. You are mm -hmm. actually known for having the largest or one of the largest web archives for bulletin board systems, um, textfiles.com. Yes. Yeah, textfiles.com came around because when I was very young and on these bulletin board systems, I would be calling any number that was interesting, all of them. And the only thing that all of them had that I could guarantee would work on my machine were the text files. And, and people are quite forgiven for not being 100 years old and remembering this, but a lot of bulletin board systems had what were called general file sections, uh, general file sections, which were meant to be like, here's information on how to post to this board or how to fix this modem or how to cause trouble. And bulletin board system operators would over time change them into straight up you know, anarchy text files, hacking text files, cracking ideas, and I would collect them all because I found them all fascinating. So by the time I get to about, you know, 14 or 15, I've collected hundreds of these and other people are giving them to me. And then I decided I would pull it, I would actually have my own bulletin board system and I called it the works BBS. And I said, we're text files only. And that got me about, I want to say about 2000 of them. Um, so, so I was collecting them at a time when I don't think it was occurring to people to collect them. So after I moved to Boston, another person took over the works BBS and even more text files came in. And then finally around 1998, I was looking up on these new search engines bulletin board systems and there was nothing about them like it was weird it was really weird how little there was about this important technology and i said you know somebody should put up a collection of these old files because they were amazing and um it ended up being me 
And so from <laughs> 1998 to now, you know, it's the 21 years later, uh, I've been running that site. And the world has progressively moved away from appreciating those files as pure, joyful, historical files. To them, they're everything from devastatingly obscene to bizarre and violent. But to me, they were a part of, you know, youth growing up online for the first time. And so I've kept them around. And textfiles.com still gets thousands of people visiting. I could not tell you uh, why those people are connecting. Like, I don't know what their relationship to it is. And um, somewhere along the line, I made a documentary about bulletin boards. I uh, got involved in additional computer history-like things. And once I got married to the Internet Archive's basically unlimited bandwidth and disk space, that was a match made in hell. And so now the amount of material that I'm bringing in or helping people bring in, you know, is equivalent to four or five textfile.coms a day. And so it's, you know, it's grown. So, so yeah, so I'm like, I've always had a fascination with kind of the way people act online and the uh, character and vision we put forward with it, you know, like how do we build our online persona and the idea that you could craft, you know, you can craft everything associated with yourself onto these online worlds. And thematically, I've kept up with that all these years. It's worked out pretty well. I'm 50 now. So, you know, like it's, it's been all my life. You, you even made a, a documentary film about it. Yeah. Um, in uh, 2000, Uh, okay, so the way that it came about is actually kind of interesting to people, um, especially, in, you know, we're talking about scene people. Like the scene has done an incredible job now of chronicling uh, a whole bunch of historical aspects in a way that really inspires me. And I think there's not enough cross-pollination between how that's happening and other um, subcultures, I would say, that would really benefit from thinking of it this way. I mean, the fact that you can say, I want to see the handwritten letters sent between these two pirate groups that led to this party of which we have all these pictures from the party and all these flyers from the party at which there were these attendees and you can look up these attendees and see what productions they were involved in. Like very few subcultures take the time to do that. And it ends up becoming, um, you know, a very um, simplified people like narratives that are single thread if we don't have that information. You know what I mean? Like we need to have something where someone goes, oh, first a guy named Yorn found the Amiga and then he wrote a tracker and then he met you know, Bill Stein and Bill Stein and he wrote a tracker together and that's how trackers are because <laughs> they kind of can't handle there being so many participants. So when I um, had all of these text files up on a site, and it was by that point 50,000 text files, I realized many of them listed bulletin board systems by phone number in the U.S., along with text files that had call my BBS. So there were <laughs> all of these traces of these bulletin boards. And for somebody who works in databases, the fact that there was an identifiable 
you know, unique quote unquote serial number, the phone number that could let you know that like, you know, uh, uh, the airplane hangar and IPX internet services both had the same phone number, which tells you it was the same people. Um, (laughs) this was like a fun weekend project. So I wrote kind of the biggest BBS list ever. And I think within the first week I had 50,000 listed and it's gone up to like, I want to say like 180,000. And so it just compiles all of these numbers. And then I put it up and it got on Slashdot. And what I, what I didn't expect was it started to function as a honeypot for all these folks who had been, you know, involved in bulletin board systems. Like you look up your name and suddenly somewhere there's this pantheon of gods listing all of the bulletin boards that were in your area code and all these names you haven't forgotten, but you haven't seen in like 20 years. And they would write me like nine paragraph stories about, oh, somebody remembers me. Here's everything you need to know about my life. And I was getting dozens and dozens and dozens of these. And at some point, you say to yourself, all right, well, there's a movie here. Like these folks should be talked to one way or another. And so since I had a film degree and I had always wanted to actually use it in some way to do films, I set off to do a documentary. So the reason my documentary is weird to people is because it's seven episodes. It's like five and a half hours long and it interviews like 250 people because I was like, nobody's done a bulletin board system documentary in 2000 i guess i'm going to do the last one and so i really made it as if this is it this is the last chance we'll have and you know since i've done that documentary like 14 of those interviewees have died um i haven't seen other bulletin board system documentaries take up any of the slack so i'm really glad i chose to do it it was very long and it was expensive but it was fun like it yeah. was great to meet your like there's something about meeting your heroes. I'm sure you guys get this. Yeah. You know, yes. like a name becomes a voice yeah. and yeah. you're like, oh man, the guy who made Sea Dragon, he's really friendly. Like yeah. it's such a joy. It, it it lets you get over all the rest of it because you're like, you know, I I mean I got to spend time with Bill Budge and Scott Adams and people yeah. from Infocom and you know, being able to meet folks that were just names on a screen works for both, you know, seeing people and works for game makers and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I can totally relate to that. I mean, um, HJ is from the American demo scene uh, or user scene for the C64, and Martin <laughs> is actually our graphic guy um, in the team. And uh, next year, we are actually doing those interviews and all that stuff since 20 years. And exactly as to say, some people already died um, sure. that I interviewed like 20 years ago. So um, I can totally relate to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of technology now to enable you to bring people back. Like you can really work well with old video and old audio recordings. And it's nice when you find out that somebody just just speculatively, without any idea what they were going to do with it, put up old interviews. Like here's a wave file of a cassette tape from when I talked to a couple guys back in – 94 i just left the you know recorder going and we can do stuff with that now like we have really good technology to make like really fascinating um work of all that audio so for me 
I'm happy that people are focusing on it. Um, every once in a while, I guess we'll get into this at some point. Every once in a while, someone goes, hey, bulletin board system documentary guy, you should do a demo scene documentary. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no. And there's some fun reasons why, no. But I appreciate, even though I know I'm not going to do it, I both appreciate the compliment that people think I should do it and also that people recognize that there's a story there because that's the first step to saving things is somebody wakes up and says, you know what? I'm not going to throw these out. I'm going to put this into a box. I'm going to put these floppies in a box. I'm going to put these notices in a box. I'm going to put this newsletter in a box because I think it's got some purpose. And then, you know, I've been at the other end of this a lot lately, but people will call me and say, I have 500 of this thing. Do you want it? I've been sitting on it for 15 years. And I'll be like, yeah, we'll handle it. Like, it's great. People want to know that the thing that they kept in their garage or their attic or their parents' house, somebody is like, yeah, thanks, man. We would have never had that. And, um, you know, I appreciate that. And, and I encourage it from people out there. If there's something you're a part of, like, keep it in a box. Just label it as old crap and leave it. And I promise you some young punks – in 2030 are going to thank you for just not doing anything, you know, basically yeah. sitting with stuff <laughs> in, a, in yeah. a pile. Well, so I guess since you talk so much about the demo scene and you seem to be so much involved into it, when, when, when we wrote to archive.org that we want to interview guys, you must have had some, some reaction like, wow, scene world. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so yeah, so let's, let's pull that back. Okay. So, um, in the demo scene, my name is Sketch the Cow or Jason Scott, depending on you know where you're on. Um, as Sketch the Cow, I did a bunch of fast tracker mods back in the 1990s. I was pals with Euphoria, although we never met, and a few other people. I knew the Hornet guys, obviously. And I went to Nade 96, and I went to Pilgrimage, a couple years of Pilgrimage in the U.S., um, I've also been to Synchrony and there's the one uh, demo splash and at party. And I think that's my entire demo party. No, nope. I also caused a lot of trouble over at envy scene. Um, I think that, I think that's, Oh, Oh, and I ran a demo party. You always forget yourself, right? So I ran a demo party, uh, block party. Uh, in the middle of the country. So that's kind of like where I've dabbled. And then I had first heard about demos in 1987, 88, uh, when I was lended an Amiga from, of all weird people, Andy Rubin, the creator of Android, uh, um, who was a friend back then. And he lent me the machine because his company had done some video production work with the Amiga and it was lying around. He said, do you want to borrow it? And I said, sure. And I was really loving this Amiga and then uh, found out about demos. And so I thought these were just absolutely magical. And so throughout the, you know, 87 to like 92 period, I was tracking down demos as best I could, wanted to go to these mythical demo parties, but I couldn't really get out to Europe. Um, let's see. And then uh, started writing mods. Then went to Nade. Uh, then I um, 
kind of like collected a bunch of stuff and got involved with a few things like that through the mid 2000s spent way too much money on block party like i spent a lot of money on block party and it was fun it was great to do it but then uh kind of faded away from it and became once again kind of an end user uh kind of a person who every once in a while goes to puet sees what the new hot ones are and says how are things you know how are people doing and what's going on there and then to a smaller extent the Internet Archive has been both saving demos and where I can putting them up emulated at the archive so that you can play them, you know, in your browser um, and experience them. Uh, and then, you know, so that's kind of where I've been now, like a vague veteran. But let's I mean, let's not pretend. I mean, I want to make that clear for anyone who's listening, because you're right. The the. um the 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 demo scene creates you know basically code and drama. Uh, I under no circumstance want to ever act like I am a an expert, b an important part of the scene, except for as one of multiple people who admire and respect capturing the artifacts for the joy of others and to chronicle, uh, and 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 that I you know love it very much so. Um, and love being there. Uh, I I was really uh, there was a demo party like thing at Magfest this past year, and I wandered into the suite where they were playing demos, and I just remember a really drunk guy like walks up to me and puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, okay, and he points at the screen and he's trying to explain to me that these are real time animations and sound and that these are demos. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to soak in. I'm not going to correct this guy. I want to soak in this love. And he just, I mean, he was just, it was like he was explaining a car or uh, an incredible baseball game. He's like, you have to understand, he's back after a vacation. It's going to be amazing. And he was drunk and happy and wanted to share <laughs> graphics with me. That, to me, was a joy, right? Like like the fact that, that that's, that's yeah. kind of like, that's the beating heart at the bottom of all this. Once you introduce that many people and that much competition and the sense that some things are better done than others you will inevitably get that weird kind of from the peanut gallery would be the American way of putting it. But, you know, the idea that people are yelling like you did it wrong. You're doing demos wrong. And that's just kind of that's just what happens when you pull all those people in. But of all the things they could uh, be arguing about, mm-hmm. the fact that that's what they chose, that tells me that the thing below it is really like special. Yeah, so there, I, you, there you go. There, there's there's Jason Scott and the demo scene, and we can go in whatever direction you want with that. <laughs> well, what I would like to know is how did you make the jump to be the responsible for archiving at <clears throat> archive.org? Um, so when the Internet Archive – so it helps to understand that the Internet Archive is a massive improvisation by a rich guy. So, oh, yeah, I saw his presentation. Yeah. yeah. So it helps to understand that because sometimes you can get kind of hung up on, well, what did your committee decide? And Brewster, over time, like if you look at everything we do, there's usually a story at the beginning of Brewster 
bumping into somebody at an event and waving his arms wildly. And next thing you know, they're involved in blank. Like that's, that's kind of the way it goes. So for instance, it was just books at the beginning, the books and the websites. And somewhere in the middle there, Brewster uh, met up with a guy who was doing home, kind of like keeping track of Grateful Dead live performances. And that led to us doing music and the Grateful Dead archive and then a whole bunch of other music. Like that's kind of just how it happened. Same thing with movies. There was a guy named Rick Prellinger who was getting old government films. So we started hosting them in like 2003 and that became how we do videos. And somewhere in there, he actually bumped into a guy named Simon Carlos who created a kind of mirror of the two cows system so that there were, you know, like a few thousand shareware programs sitting on the archive inert, you know, just zip files in the description. Mm -hmm. And Simon did that for a while, but then he left, he went off and did a whole bunch of other things. He's one of the guys who runs GDC and black hat now, like he's gone off to a great career and the software collection lay dormant mostly from like 2005 onward. And when Brewster hired me, they now call it Project Zero, but what it really is is a hazing ritual where they give you an impossible task and then you go off and try to work on it. And based on how you feel after it, you stay or you go. And Brewster said, you know what would be really great if we, I think we really have fallen behind on software. <laughs> we, we, you know, we have it, we have a pile of stuff. Maybe you could do something about that. And maybe, maybe we could have something where we have virtual servers set up and people could play the programs. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that's called VNC. It's also called emulation as a service now. And I'm like, that won't scale. We should put the emulator in the browser using JavaScript. And he was like, that's insane. It will never work. But it does oh, work. T tell me about <laughs> it. Tell tell us about yeah, it. I mean, yeah. Martin sure. himself, he spent time <laughs> getting the Amiga emulator to run, yeah. not, not running into law issues because nobody was giving, giving us a license for the operating system and, and the workbench and all that crap. Oh, my God. It took us it took us half a year to figure out how it works because of all the technical thing and the law law problems in the sure. Amiga scene. Oh, my God. Absolutely. There was a there was somebody who uh, here's the problem. If you name any names in the Amiga scene, they're just going to send you lawyer letters. So let's not do that. Yeah. But the um, like they don't they don't need the defamation. But I think one of my friends really summarized it as the best. He said Amiga, the Amiga industry from 2000, sorry, 1994 to the present day is three companies suing each other over the same $20,000. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. that's basically what it is, right? And it's really unfortunate that you have this environment that affected so many people, and there is a belief that nobody should be able to run this historical stuff without paying a toll. And not every, you know, every platform has its own personality quirks, you know, the Mac people versus the Microsoft and so on. And I've dealt with some of them. I've spoken to some of them, some of their lawyers, some of them directly. Um, everybody has a different opinion 
on old software as to its viability and so on. And I think part of the biggest problem is that the half-life of software is so brutally short. Like we have proof on the Apple II side that there were programs written for the Apple II Plus that absolutely couldn't run on the Apple IIe, but nobody checked or cared because the program was done, right? After 1983, who cares? And here we are trying 20 years later to make it work. And we're having to go in. I mean, people are doing binary changes. And so you kind of complicate that with the fact that there are a number of titles that still, in defiance of everything, still have a viable product life. You know, and and by that I'm thinking about things like uh, Doom or Boulder Dash or um, even things as obscure as like Drug Wars or Pimp Wars. And there are these programs that have persisted, Oregon Trail, um, which have persisted up to the modern era. Mm -hmm. But then there's literally a million other titles that have no hope of any commercial exploitation, that have no future. And if we didn't make an effort and hope for forgiveness, or the way I put it, you know, ask for probation instead of permission, um, if you didn't move this way, it would just disappear. Like there'd be no way to pull it back. And um, it's, a, it's sticky. So, yeah, the Amiga and the Commodore 64 emulation on the archive, oh, yeah, not everybody is pleased. But pretty much everybody is pleased. Um, well, even the '64, the uh, the ROMs from that have recently been claimed. So even you know when they did the '64 Reloaded, when you know you're not allowed to include any of the ROMs with it. You have to get your own because someone decided that they own it. So, uh, so I'm not fully authorized to discuss legal everything, but I will <laughs> tell you that um, if you fundamentally look a lot of these conflicts, a lot of the conflicts arise over money changing hands Mm -hmm. so it's one thing you can argue about whether or not and and what will happen is that some of these firms whose job is to make an old program play again but they haven't done all of their diligence but they're still selling the program um they will try to paint a picture that everybody is affected by it Again, I'm being really general here. So let's say somebody takes King's Quest and basically recreates it on a phone, an Android phone, and they load it into the Google Play Store and they're selling it for $19.99. And some long dormant company comes along and says, hey, King's Quest, that's ours. The people who made that $19 um android port that they didn't talk to anybody anybody about might try to paint it as whoa they're trying to kill history but they've got a specific dog in that fight right, right. they've got right. a very and mm. and they're another party they're another faction like if you look at like a lot of the companies that get in trouble you'll find out like like websites will go down and you're like yeah but that website was charging like 20 bucks a month for a quote unquote membership. Mm -hmm. Like that's a very specific thing. 
we're a nonprofit. We're a library. We get takedowns all the time. We comply with the takedowns. We deal with it. And the fact is, is it will not be a big surprise to people to know that Capcom doesn't want people to play Street Fighter for free, that Atari does not want people to play Asteroids for free. And yet there will be, you know, bizarre one-off shareware programs that came out in 1983 and nobody cares. <laughs> Similarly, you know, with the Commodore, there are all these really obscure um, uh, packages that were cool and were really an indication of pushing things that have no future. And so they're up, nobody checks on them. But every once in a while, there'll be some package um, the company that owns Epics, for example, uh, who own Jumpman and Winter Games, they're still active. They're a Bible software company, to give you an idea. And so they'll be like, take down Winter Games. And it's like, okay, I'll have to console myself with the other 70,000 titles. Um, and so, so like, it's, it's unfortunate that we're in this hybrid world. And... I'm happy to be one of the troublemakers and get yelled at. Um, I'm happy to be that person. A lot of institutions are very scared. They live in constant fear. Um, and so part of the job from 2012 onwards was to indicate, first of all, that emulation was a valid discipline and staging of old software. And I think we've pretty much done that. Like nobody really freaks out that there's emulation in the browser now. It's so mundane. And I love that. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. And then from there, you find out like, oh, yeah, there's a handful of packages that people are still selling and they're reissuing. Okay, great. But there's like a million demos and there's a million old mods and there's a million old writings that, you know, we're happy to host. And we're happy to make available. And um, the amount of times it's run into trouble is vanishingly small. But um, I don't recommend anybody. I mean, like, <clears throat> here's the thing. Fundamentally, if you do anything on the Internet that gets any amount of attention, you are in a special kind of hell. <laughs> like that's and that's just right like that's it that's just the nature of it and if you talk to somebody and you say to someone hey you've really been you know like you're really getting famous for the thing how has the troublemakers been you'll see the light go out of their eyes and they'll be like oh you mean like barry yeah barry uh, tell me about it tell me about it and that's um, just how, but i think to me that's just the nature of the game i think that people who were stage or music performers or celebrities or anything from the last hundred years had the same problem. We just didn't have the feedback loop. Like right. if I think that if you had Frank Sinatra, even like performing on television sixties and there was some way for some idiot to use a typewriter and have it show up on the video screen underneath him singing, it would be full of ridiculous idiots. Like that's, that's the nature of it. We've given everybody this platform. We've added no social controls. So everybody gets to go from zero to 100. And some of them think they're helping. And the feedback loop implies they're helping because people will write like because they like trouble. There's no, there's no reason why, right? I mean, I go to bed every night very happy. And I, I enjoy what gets done. And I love doing fun experiments. There's a collection on the archive of something called the ultimate tape archive, 
this is from like a couple years back. There's a number of people who have been turning old C64 tapes into dot wave files. Yeah. And, um, and digitizing. Plus, um, yeah. Oh, it's glorious. And, and they're digitizing the cassette tape front and the packaging, right? So I put them all up on the archive and they load in real time. So you can go here and you can sit for 14 minutes while it boots up a Pac-Man game, right? <laughs> and yeah, it's wonderful. So, so, like, the thing is, is it's interesting in a roundabout sense, I suppose, to watch how these different companies dealt with that. Like, our product takes 14 minutes to load. What do we do? And some of them would add, like, little graphic interstitials or have Hello. music. Yeah. yeah. And, or little and, games to play. Yeah. And that would all go away if we didn't take this effort. Like, People would just go, here's the program. Um, Fraction of a second, it's low. Perhaps, Enjoy. Right. Yeah. And perhaps even worse, yeah. it would just end up as a YouTube video. Like yeah. you watch a video <laughs> of someone playing it and go like, yeah. I know about that game. Look what the video says. Yeah. Well, some, some YouTubers make money with that. <laughs> no, we've, oh, seen, no, we've than... seen games that have been you know, re-released and whatnot where, where it misses, you know, there's no more loading now and, and you lose the, uh, the you know, Intro. intros a lot of times. I, I got a, um, <laughs> an actual physical copy of an old uh, EA game, you know, Skate or Die, and I, I put it in, in my, my old computer. And I totally forgot that the Electronic Arts logo would pop up on screen and like change colors as it loaded. And That's actually the moment where it checks for the copy protection. Right, right. And it had totally, <laughs> like, that had fallen out of my brain so many years ago because you don't see it on the emulators because you just jump right to the game. Or or because most of the stuff that you find, you know, for the emulators are <laughs> pirated or, or we're, we're, you know, we're not the the original version of the game because of the, the copy protection. So, so, yeah, a lot of that stuff does get lost if it isn't, if it isn't put somewhere. Yeah, there's a program, or I should say an effort. Okay, so I know you guys are like on the Commodore side. So on the Apple II side, well, there has been... Oh, you're everywhere. But there's <laughs> on the Apple II side, there's been some real huge advancements in the past three or four years. Uh, there's a new Flux Reader that's really powerful. There are some really talented folks. And we're reaching out to a lot of dormant archives not similar, not dissimilar to the the the, the Bamiga Sector One kind of stuff, where somebody has four thousand floppies sitting that used to be a user group, and we're going through them. And I launched into something called Project Everything, and that's where we're just trying to catalog every Apple II commercial product that ever came out. And we're using this as like a here's here's this advantage we have. A lot of folks are paying attention, really talented folks really good at this are focusing on the programs where are the gaps and it's actually rather shocking i mean not shocking to people who are in it anymore but like there are programs that are canonical you know like we think of that program for the apple like choplifter or hard hat mac and you go yeah i played the cracked version but one of the things that has come out is we have discovered cases where nobody played the real version. 
Like there's no copy of the real version out there. Mm-hmm. We are literally getting a box where someone goes, yeah, hard hat Mac. I've heard of it. It's like, yeah, but nobody ever flux imaged this original disc because they thought we had it. We didn't have it. So we're missing title screens. We're missing gameplay. Yeah. We're missing loading mm-hmm. because they've all been modified. And the Apple II and the Commodore, I would say right now, have probably the top quality amount of human effort behind them to yeah, gather can, their history. Like to I can really relate get, to that. Yeah. So when people get hung up on the shortcomings, I'm like, the Tandy people would kill to have your shortcomings. <laughs> like there are there there yeah. are certainly some where you're like, man, nobody, nobody has this. And um and we're focusing, like I said, there's some copy protection schemes for the apple II that turned out to be incompatible outside of the machine itself like the apple versus the apple II plus versus the apple IIe. like each one had its own problems even back then under ideal conditions using magnetic fluxed original copies so yeah what this comes down to is not getting overworked about the idea that we haven't gotten everything or it's not perfect because it's it's determined that even if you're literally putting people who helped design Google Chromium behind like fixing up Apple II cracking software, you're still getting shortcomings. You're still missing stuff. It's an infinite field. You know, instead, really appreciate the great stuff we have, the fact that you can – you know, I mean, I discovered this with Puet even, right? The amount of Puet links that depend on Dropbox or Google Drive links, and they're going to disappear. Yeah. And people are yeah. going to have to refind them again. You know, like that's just that I understand it at the time. Dropbox, really easy to use, go for it, but then they disappear. Yeah. And, that's even and that's with a group that you have to look at as saying they are aggressively obsessively trying to chronicle this history they're still falling short that's just the nature of this game i actually would like to take this to to the next question because I actually was planning to to ask you about it because I saw a lot of presentations from Brewster and from you and your presentations, at least those that I saw on eBay, are epic. For example, one where you explained how you fooled the agent detection of uh, of Yahoo Yahoo Homestead and uh, to, to be able to download all the archive when they announced they would shut down uh, Google, uh, Google uh, I think it was Yahoo GeoCities. Yeah, yeah. And so. and 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 you 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 said like there was a limit of 200 megabytes and you had to find a rate around the cutoff and then you you kind of modified the agent client to actually present sure. to, to to Yahoo like you are Google or something. And yeah, I think not, this was an amazing not, story. Not the Google bot. So um, the all right. So what you're getting into there is the way that I first got Brewster's attention was I had started a uh, activist archiving group in the late 2000s, and the reason I did that was because it was a recognition by myself and a few others who I hung out with that 
there were all of these user-created communities in the 1990s that had been bought and sold in around the 2000 era and then used kind of as almost like advertising pits for the next eight to 10 years, followed by the company saying, yeah, you know what? We're going to get rid of this. Uh, we'll give you a free membership to our new service. We'll give you the, like, <laughs> and they're like, they were as close to established old online communities as one could get, you know, um, GeoCities is a common one that people know, but there have been literally dozens and, um, you know, they linger on for a while and then over time people age out or it ends and then suddenly this stuff disappears. And for a lot of what was happening, the narrative was, well, it was fun. Bye-bye. And we were taking the attitude of somebody, somebody should make a coordinated attempt to gather as much of this data as possible and store it off so that the conversation doesn't end as soon as the site goes down. And I said, there should be a team of archivists, archive team, an A team that launches in. <laughs> and that was enough to get, you know, a few dozen people involved and then a few hundred people involved. And the archive team has now been around for 10 years. And it's been collecting. It's doing it right now. Like as we speak, there's probably five to ten open projects where they are recognizing things that are at risk and nobody's paying attention to them. And it would be terrible if they went away. And they're archiving them and then putting them up. And um, in some cases, the companies have been resistant to being downloaded. And we've had to do all sorts of tricks and misrepresent ourselves as Google and and uh, you know uh, uh, cut between a you know a hundred different IP addresses. And other times the companies are just lost, like they don't even know what's going on. And and of course every once in a while an opportunity comes up where uh, I get my hands on some old data. So for instance, the most recent one was uh, MySpace, quote unquote, lost all that data. Yeah. And um, it turned out a number of people had done academic studies in the late 2000s and had terabytes of music. So we put it all back up again <laughs> to varying degrees of success. Um, same thing with um, uh, the Internet Underground Music Archive, which got shut down with about a month of warning in 2008. And so in 2011, I put it all back up again. Um, of the 43,000 bands we put up, I would say... Uh, like 300 were not happy, but the vast majority were happy. And, you know, people are like, why are they unhappy? I'm like, well, sometimes it was the weird, terrible demo version of an album they later sold. Uh, other times somebody is in some disgusting punk band and then now he's an accountant with three kids. And so he's like, could you please take my name off the bone writers LP? Um, <laughs> But on the whole, it was, you know, most people were like, oh, my God, you know, I mean, here's my collaborator who died and his family hated that he was a musician. So they threw all his stuff out and you guys have the only copies. That's fantastic or whatever, you know, like, oh, my dad died. Um, and this is music he did before he uh, got sick. That's fantastic. And, and so on. So it's been I mean, that happens a lot. Right. If you're in the business of taking a lot of old things holding them and making them available in the same way I said, you know, you're, if you're public and big on the internet, you're going to get troublemakers in the same way. There will always be people who appreciate coming back into contact with material that they were told 
and believed it was completely lost. Um, so that's kind of been my ballowick for the past, you know, nine years at the archive mm. has been helping people come back into contact with community and culture that they're told is worthless or not available or not around. Um, with archive team, we've always had a little bit of a cranky pirate flag feel to it, mm. but you know, on the whole, we're doing a valid, important thing. And, uh, yeah, my presentations tend to be a little more rambunctious than Brewster's. And he's always, he's always thought that was kind of odd, how I do my weird... I still like both of you. I, I know when Brewster's were like, oh, we have, we have um, decentralized our homepage, our web stuff. So you can even yeah. watch it from China, where most stuff is blocked, or Iran or something. And then he was making a live demonstration. And he was as happy as a child... <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that even in those countries you can still access archive.org even if it's slower than normal but um, yeah Brewster has a whimsical spirit about him that really belies the fact that he's 59 years old like he really loves weird toys and it didn't take me that long to figure out working for him that as long as he didn't have to pay a lot of speculative money Like as long as he didn't have to pay a quarter of a million dollars for 10 people to possibly work on it for a year. And I just would show him something people were working on and we just had to make a few small changes to hook it in. He loved that. So that's how yeah. we ended up with the uh, Winamp player at the Internet Archive. So if there's an audio item and you click on the llama in the right side of the screen, it will turn into a JavaScript implementation of the Winamp player because he thought that was neat. And that's somebody else's pet project for like five years. But we yeah, put it up true. and it was just a beloved thing. I, I have a question. Um, how, how do you, uh, um, how do you uh, make the decision to what to work on at the archive.org? So um, how do you organize the project or how do you make the decision? Ah, oh, let's, let's look at this stuff. This might be interesting. How, how's the process going on there? Okay, so there's a couple layers to that, of course. So the Internet Archive itself is run by Brewster, who's kind of like the head idea man in charge. So his priorities are the archive's priorities. I'll give you an example. We have one of the largest online collections of 78 RPM records. And the reason for that is because he's like, I sure do love 78 RPM records. So we're digitizing them. We've put up over a quarter million. And so we're, you know, like, that's a thing. So... Now we have lots of it. Um, he knows the Wayback is an incredibly important tool, and he's always thinking of ways to improve it. So that's why the Wayback has such a prominent place. And then after that, you know, we do book scanning. We do uh, 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 adding stuff given to us by partner organizations. Um, you know, I'm saying like like I'm thinking of like um, like the Library of Congress. Or um, places like uh, uh, Boston's Public Library or New York's Public Library, where they're working with us either to digitize materials that are only in their collections and then make it available through them, or we're helping them archive their websites to guarantee their presence is searchable. So, like, there's a lot of that froth going around. Um, my particular area, though, is my my. My title at the Internet Archive is Free Range Archivist. And I think in other situations it would be called like Coordinator of Special Projects. Mm. 
<laughs> and that generally means, and I think this is very important. I talk about this. So a, um, a personality-oriented collective like the Archive can lead to a problem when the person doesn't care about the thing. And so, uh, like, if there's somebody brings up, like, we should be doing this, and the person goes, nah, and that's the end of it, right? Like, there's no whatever. But on multiple occasions, Brewster has taken his basic take with a lot of my projects has been if it doesn't really cost us any money like and by that he means hiring people uh having to do management having to you know spend a lot of money on licenses and a bunch of other things you know go for it let's see what happens on the other end like go for it and then we'll decide how it is um he considers and and when i say that calculation I'll, i'll be clear he means bandwidth and discs are free and the reason why is because we're doing that anyway. Like at this current moment, we have two petabytes of free disk space that we're filling. Like that's our latest disk buy. So, okay, if you're going to spend a couple hundred gigs or, you know, a terabyte or maybe five terabytes on this project, go ahead. What is it? And I'll be like, hip hop music mixtapes. <laughs> Like, okay, how's that go? And I go, well, there's these places. They're making them available. Um, it looks out to be about 6,000 tapes. Uh, each one's about you know 100 megs. And I'll just be like, trust me, people want this. And he'll go, oh, great. And so suddenly we have this huge hip-hop mixtape archive that gets hundreds of thousands of people visiting it. And he can, at the end of the day, go, I'm brilliant. Look at this great idea I came up with. But it's mostly him saying, yeah, okay. What what could it be? And that was the same way he took about software or when I put up, um, you know, there was like rave music uh, from a lot of places, old zines, uh, anything where it's like, oh, here's PDFs of camping magazines from the 50s. And he'll be like, OK, well, let's see what that looks like. And it'll turn out to have this group who's like, oh, we never could put all of them up before because nobody could afford the bandwidth and nobody could spend, you know, nobody could add a reader. We do all that. So that very minor but critical management technique of I don't need to have everything go across my desk and sign it off, go ahead and do it, experiment with it, has caused me to do things like put up console-based demos, demo scene pictures, uh, old weird um, VHS tapes, unusual rave tapes, you know, everything, because he's like, okay, because I happen to believe the future for us is ephemera, all the parts that like, like, there's always going to be companies who will like do these massive negotiation routines and buy the back catalog of Random House and then make them available for five ninety nine a month um, subscription fee and you can read 50,000 books or whatever. But nobody is scanning old placemats or tractor manuals or um, recordings of, of speeches given at conferences nobody cares about 50 years later except they're hilarious like do that and so he's been like yeah okay and every once in a while it hits so in this way it's been a good partnership so there you go actually i have a question about it because um some weeks ago i was interviewing birgit lechtermann who is one of the pioneers in 
making the first computer shows for youngsters in the 80s here in Germany. And she told me she got a cellar full of VHS tapes and music tapes with her radio and TV shows all about um, the computer history, you know, with the Commodore 64 and Amiga. And she is looking for somebody to archiving that, to go physically in her cellar, digging up those VHS tapes um, and converting it and then storing it at some place. And we, when, when she heard that I'm going to, uh, that we are going to interview you today, um, she wanted me to ask you if archive.org would actually be interested in helping that course and putting all that stuff online because she know she knows that back in the day you did the same for the computer chronicles sure and so there's always so the answer to her and almost everyone else is there's usually three different ways to think of it the first one is i have a hard drive full of stuff help me get it somewhere and i'll tell you we can get that stuff up within a day or a couple days like that'll be super easy in his in his case somebody in her case somebody has to go to her cellar and physically um digitize the vhs tapes first right and then that so so that's what i mean so there's the second level the second level is i have all this content it needs to be turned into that hard drive and then maybe you'll take it to which i can usually coordinate with people like it'll turn out you have to find i mean this is i don't know how interesting this is on a pure basis but think of it as like every time you need to like rent a car or take a play off a plate there's a whole checklist so you go okay do you want the stuff back like do you want the originals back um do you have people who want to digitize it but they have no place to put it therefore they haven't set off and done it or um do you have a hard drive and you just found no place each of those is like certain levels of, of ease or not ease, right? So I love it when people are like, I have 700 PDFs. Can you help me? And I'm like, yeah. Um, <laughs> the next one is, of course, is similar. Oh, I have, you know, all these .avis. I just want to put them somewhere. Again, perfect. When somebody says, like, I have X amount of tapes or X amount of books, um, I am all for digitizing those. It might be easier to find that there's somebody local who, if they're told, we'll send them a hard drive, they rip the, the VHS tapes and then we put them on, we'll do all the rest of it for them. That might be the one final pebble that sends the avalanche. Like, oh, there's a guy who'll do it, but he has no place to put it. Well, we'll send you the hard drive. You don't have to spend money on the hard drive. We'll walk over with you. So my attitude is to like talk to people and then find out like – you know, like what's their, where are their limits? I mean, now I don't mind giving people my address. It's jscott at archive.org, jscott at archive.org. People can always write to me. I always have a few tickets open. Actually, I you find, wrote me from your text files email address. So I don't know which one you prefer. Well, I meant for people who are out there who are writing in. When I respond, no, um, text files. actually, actually, she wants that you that you contact her um media agency that represents her because she she is on television she doesn't want her uh, um, personal data out so the way to contact her is to go through her media media agency and they will talk to you and um 
makes these things happen. So I would I would email you her contact data of her agency. Yeah. Well, that's that's how how it is with people that that are on television and so on. Well, they they have this level of you know um, a crap filter. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to well, communication. Well, I will. So I will tell you. So so you, you, yeah, the other two guys are immediately responding to this because the reason is, like I said, there's levels. There's mm-hmm. levels. I get people who are like, I've got two hundred tapes that I filmed at demo parties. And you go, great, let's make those live. Um, Then I have people for whom they're like, well, we're thinking of doing a partnership with you where we see a media buy. And you're like, okay, well, this is never going to happen. But sure, let's go ahead. I'll I'll certainly start that conversation. Because usually somebody comes in there. Just, I mean, I'm not saying this will be the case here. But eventually somebody will go, and what will your licensing fee be? And I'll be like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. But but um, I'd rather that conversation get started because maybe five years down the road, the person goes, yeah, look, just 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 take the tapes. Just but, just get them out of my house. And right. I, I'm yeah. totally for it. So so I, I will give you her contact data of her agency and maybe you can figure something out because she stored it 30, 30 years in her cellar just to make sure it doesn't get lost. She, sure. she doesn't want to toss it away. But she wants it to be preserved for the future. And that Absolutely. is why she is keeping it, despite her family around is saying, like, get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, at worst, and I've done this before, uh, we actually have totally done this before. I, I think it helps to understand <laughs> it helps to understand the scale. Last week, with very little warning, somebody in Oakland, California told us about his media collection, and there was stuff we wanted on it. And three days later, 14 pallets of material <laughs> showed up at our warehouse. <laughs> okay, so that was, that was last week. All right. Yeah. And that's like, yeah. like thousands and thousands of CDs, Blu-rays, videotapes, books. Like, we do that. We have a couple warehouses. Like, we're doing this. So I'm not afraid to talk to people. Mm-hmm. But it's always a case of, for some people, mentally... They just want to know there's a place they could choose to send it to, and then they bring it back to their family to go see. I mean, I'm going mm, to keep it and no. hoard it, and I'm not going to move with it. But I'm, I'm just saying, it goes all these different ways. I probably have 20 or 30 of these going at any given time, like various discussions. And sometimes well, it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Well, I, did, I did, did have an interview with her for one hour, I guess. If she wasn't interested about your computer journalism past, she wouldn't have done the interview in the first place. Mm. <laughs> so, and, and she kept it for 30 years in her cellar. So I think she really wants to move forward to it. Because she said she, she goes to places at Gamescom and other events, and youngsters who were never born in the 80s tell her, like, wow, this is interesting. You should put it up all on YouTube. Uh-huh. You know? So, yeah. yeah. No, I'm ha- Again, I'm happy to start that conversation. I'm just telling you, I do this a lot. There's a lot out there. And I'm more than... I'm, and I'm not... I don't go into each one. I think it's unhealthy to go into each one like it's the last possible chance to get this information because I think that just makes you over excite everybody and get way too into it. But I'm happy to be, I mean, these conversations, I have them all the time and I'm more than happy to be part of it. 
Great, thank you. Um, maybe I have just another question that's a little bit similar. Uh, it's just sure. like uh, how, uh, as we as a um, community or just like people doing stuff online, um, how could we um, help the culture to get more archived or more, uh, just like for example, the, the, uh, the, the demo scene is pretty much self-documenting itself. So they have the awareness for this. And I've seen so many digital cultures just like vanished, just like what you already said. Um, I, I've did lots of net audio stuff and all the websites are not online anymore, but archive.org has the MP3s. <laughs> yeah. um, can we as, as a culture or as a people who, who make stuff online, um, um, for example, to help you or as we as a culture to, to have this flying around? Here's the thing. Okay. There's uh, so so yeah. When you get any sort of a culture, it doesn't even have to be online. Those things usually have multiple layers to themselves. They have artifacts, things that are generated that represent part of that culture. Whether it's newsletters, writings, songs, recordings of the jam session, uh, message forum posts, and so on. Then you have the folks themselves, like the actual human meat, and it's a whole selection of stories and gossip and people. And then finally, you have like kind of like the public face of it, like what represents this to other people. People who aren't in the subculture might have stuff about the subculture that you didn't even know was part of your deal, like newspaper articles or showing up on a thing or being discussed somewhere else. And um, – Every everything that isn't self-evident uh, needs a chronicler, needs somebody who is who who maybe and you always get this role from somebody who wants to be part of things but maybe either doesn't have the talent for it or isn't comfortable being that. So you have all these people who do jam sessions every weekend at this place and they're they're amazing. And there's a guy who goes and he listens to them. He can't jam, but he can run a tape recorder. And he, so he's just been recording them all these all these years, and he writes down who was at the jam session, so you know, like this guy was on horn and this guy was on keyboard, mm -hmm. and at some point that person has created a body of work about this culture that may be the main way it exists, and it's that critical moment where you hope they don't have a heart attack and nobody notices what this thing is, or that others haven't made duplicates of his work so that it's preserved and that's when you step in right and so um when you have a subculture that's based around online the main advantage or the difference to all of this is that when it goes if it's digital it really goes like when a hard drive stops dead that party is over it's not like a, a, a sheaf of papers that you stuck into a manila envelope and forgot about and you open them up 80 years later and you're like oh Ah, this is interesting. Like it's gone. That's the main thing that adds a kind of, um, uh, you know, real stress to it, along with the fact that um, it becomes harder and harder to get to that material over time. Like there might not be an export function or there might not be some attempt to, you know, convert it into a web archive or it's behind a password protection and nobody's keeping a copy. There, there, there are some hybrid groups I deal with. Um, there is a subclass or maybe a setting, uh, what's a better word, a phylum of online community 
who want to have a hybrid public private space, like they want all the advantages of the internet, the interconnective, the interconnective tissue, the, the, the ease of transport, but they don't want it to be copied anywhere because they think of it as private. Mm -hmm. They're a nightmare. Um, but everybody else, a lot of times, you know, like, um, a good example would be you're the man now dog, which, um, was collecting all of this artwork, uh, flash based artwork. And then over time, myself and others had archived copies of it because it was public facing and they had grabbed it. And then one day you're the man now dog, um, went under like it just, the hard drive stopped working and the guy wasn't in the mood to deal with it. And so I announced you're the archive now dog and, you know, showed how you could get it to pretty much play at the archive. It's not perfect, but you could get like 85 to 90% of the experience. And that was just pure luck. Um, if somebody is part of a culture and they're worried that like a lot of these layers are not being kept, they probably should be the chronicler. They probably should take on that interest, gather the stuff. I will tell people my one hint to them is you don't have to make it perfect. It'd be nice if it was perfect. But I would hate for you to not do the work because you're scared. Like, and, and if I have to keep going back to that metaphor, like that you're scared, you're putting the tape recorder in the wrong part of the room. Like at least you put a tape recorder in the room um, in the same way that like you're gathering up a whole bunch of material. Like maybe you're not doing it perfect. Maybe you haven't put it into a format that's perfect, but you did it. And then later somebody writes code that says, yeah, every time this guy did this, he meant this. And then it's done. Like it's fixed. The problem's fixed. <laughs> yeah. I'm not too worried. But if you don't have that data. And so there's a yeah. lot of places out there. And, and, I, I, and I, I'm going to round out back again to what I said about the people. Just doing a Skype interview with some of the folks saying, hey, dude, can I just talk to you for an hour? Just about like what this thing is. And just talk to them. And then have a bunch of wave files. That is like super valuable. Like you know, five, <laughs> ten years later. Exactly, exactly. I can actually, I can actually relate to that because in 2016, I decided to email archive.org and I wanted to ask, what can we do to have our stuff archived? You know, <laughs> podcast interviews with tech pioneers that are 88. Or even above 90, and and I, uh, to my surprise, I got a response, and I was told if you want to have a collection page dedicated to you, you need to have at least five files of a type. So let's see, let's say for example, five podcast episodes. So it's fifty. Five, uh, sorry, fifty, fifty, um, yeah, fifty history interviews, and. And so when we had 50s together from the historical interviews of tech pioneers and we have 50 podcast interviews, I actually wrote to archive.org and we got those two collections, especially for SceneWorld. And I'm always surprised how supportive you guys were. When, when I had a problem or a question, I always got it fixed within a few hours. And um, it's, it's actually amazing. It's amazing how easy it was to get um, 
to get a special collection at archive.org and to get it archived. And it's sad, as you said before, that many people don't even take the effort of emailing you and asking you, how can I help? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I get it because um, if you work at the archive, you think everybody knows about the archive. I, that's what I ran into when I was first there. <laughs> and the other thing I think is that we seem a lot bigger than we are. There's probably about 170 full-time employees of varying degrees around the world. Um, but to give you an idea of how things are, I mean, I can, like, when you send mail into the archive, I know who gets it. And I know the two people that person forwards them to. And the one person on staff they forward it to if it's like a, you know, legal thing. And when you mail the Internet Archive and say anything about software, like you use the word software in there, like I have a bunch of old software, it just ends up in my mailbox. Like the person <laughs> who's running the front is like software, Jason. And <laughs> if it and similarly like, oh, here's a bunch of here, person wants to make a collection. Uh, give it to Jeff. Like it'll go exactly. to Jeff. Jeff is the guy that yeah. I emailed Jeff. with. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like me and Jeff sitting at a table. There's Jake, uh, you know, and so on. Like, like it's very small and we have okay. a lot of automation and we do our best to deal with people who want to add stuff and we try to reach out. Um, but I'm one of the main people doing outreach and there's only like two or three of us doing that kind of outreach. So I'm not surprised that not everyone knows this is a thing. But one of the reasons that I do my attention-grabbing presentations and my tweets that link to crazy stuff is to kind of put in people's minds that this all exists. And more than once, I've had someone go, yeah, I saw you did a tweet about... Um, like, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a guy right now um, in Chicago. He has recorded a lot of shows. He taped them. Enough that he's annoying to a lot of clubs like they think of him as the guy who taped everything i found an article about him from 1994 so he's been at it for a while right he's got like 50,000 tapes wow. and i guess he did a podcast he appeared on a podcast this past week where he's like yeah i don't know what i'm gonna do with him okay well yeah. now i have gotten something like 25 uh uh Twitter DMs, emails, and now, if if it went across the thing, um, a Skype message from a coworker going, "Do you know about this guy? Can you talk to him?" So like that happens. Like I'm kind of the catch-all for somebody has a bunch of stuff, they want it online, but they don't know what to do with it. It's at risk. Call Jason, and wow. it's scary sometimes because like on reddit someone will go yeah i have like i'm sitting on 500 floppies what do i do with them and someone will go call jason somebody will see that they will message me and i will show up like three minutes later going yeah what you, you need something like like it's like the scary <laughs> presence now so, on the internet so that so, means that means when I wrote to you, when I wrote to archive.org that I want to interview guys, then Jeff were like, oh, these crazy guys that keep emailing me since three years, Some, yeah. they want to talk to us. How about Jason? Is this yeah, how Jason. it went? You spoke yeah, about Seinfeld on the coffee table or something. Yeah, I'm sure that's how it went. I'm sure what <laughs> happened is, now I work out of New York and um, they tend to be in California. But yeah, essentially a mail comes in. Oh, someone wants to do an interview. Uh, 
a lot of times Brewster will do interviews. Let's put it this way. Uh, when Playboy wants to interview him for a two-page spread, Brewster probably gets the interview. When Scene World Podcast wants to do a one-hour podcast, <laughs> probably goes to Jason. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I'm, I'm one of the people that can be contacted. I mean, unless it was about books, then it would, might go to another guy named Chris. Um, you know, and so on. Like, like, in other words, if it wasn't anywhere in my subject area, they would still find other people to talk to. Um, but, but, yeah, on the whole... It's like, here's this odd thing. Jason will do it. He'll give a semi-coherent interview. He'll tell people where to go. Um, that's probably how it happened. Um, but no, it wouldn't. It certainly, let's put it this way. The volume of mail is such that I guarantee you we do not have a roundtable discussion of the inbox. Because um, <laughs> the inbox is very, very huge. Uh, we'll probably get a couple hundred messages a day, which is why... You know, you'll get, and I mean, a hundred real meaty messages like, hi, I work with the astronomical. Like, here's a good example of one that's up on the archive now. And I helped put it together and I look at it and I'm like, okay, it's a Canadian group that records 24 hour recordings of birds in this one park in, um, I think it's in Montreal and they put up the 24-hour recording, and then a member of their ornithological society listens to it, condenses it down to the individual birds that were heard, and then adds a second track of, and here's the best of, of the last 24 hours, and here's what birds we hear. And they've been uploading that for months, like just months of recordings of a park. <laughs> wow. And it's just there. Along with all of their, you know, newsletters and stuff. And we're like, okay. Um, I was doing some deep diving in our audio collections. And I have discovered, to my great surprise, like I, I, this happened once and I thought, that's odd. And now I found out it happens all the time. There are radio stations, especially in um, a lot of countries like Argentina, Brazil, um, Middle East, where th they have show archives that you can go to on their site, but they're all archive.org. Yeah. Like they're uploading them to us and then linking to them. And they're just sitting around and I've written stuff to condense them into collections. And I'll be like, this person has uploaded 1,800 shows because it'll be the last six years of this radio station. Like all their, all their shows and interviews. And I, created these collections out of thin air and when the first time it happened i thought well that's pretty unique and weird i'm up to a hundred like a wow. hundred radio stations that depend on us randomly in the u.s to hold all of their archives so like the archive gets between 2500 and 3000 new items a day that's outside of people who we've arranged it with right. like that's just folks folks uh, uploading to the open collections so 3000 a day so that brings me to a to a question which is that like you mentioned earlier you know that that one of the main things that that we can focus on is the the ephemeral stuff you know yeah. the, the things that aren't necessarily you, you know from it, it's a it's a it's a band recording from a club when they were young and nobody remembers it or it's a it's a meeting at a boardroom that no one remembers 10 minutes after it happened, but you know, but we keep it. Um, 
where does that like where is that line drawn between what is worth being archived and what isn't? I mean, I have my own philosophies, but I'm not necessarily the only person. Um, I think, like, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, so there's a recording approach, which I like in theory. And what it does is it records from a position on Earth all of the radio spectrum. Mm-hmm. And there's a program for this, and I'm totally forgetting what it is. Somebody out there just called it out at his podcast. But it basically records all radio spectrum, okay? And I think it works out to, I want to say, like 10 or 20 megs a second. You know, whatever it is. Right. And um, there are then client programs that can take that file and literally tune it like a radio, like move it up and down and add squelch and be able to interpret it like it was an incoming radio signal. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And the idea in the, in your mind of, well, why don't we just record all the radio spectrum? And then later we go back and we're able to see what was happening on that day. And that's amazing. That is an interesting idea. But it currently, with the current technology, doesn't scale because you're talking about literally terabytes a day. Right. So we, it's too much. It's too much for us. Um, in, uh, in the era of the petabyte hard drive, which is perhaps not too far off, probably in the next five to ten years, probably earlier than that, when you can spend you know, whatever it is, $400 and have a petabyte of disk storage, um, then it makes sense. Sure. Go ahead. One, one drive a year. Awesome. But um, right now it doesn't make sense. It's too much. Um, And yet there'll be stuff where somebody sends me, you know, like VHS tape. And that's about 12 gigs an hour, I think, to get that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, put it up. (laughs) Whatever it is. Recordings of commercials, old news programs, weird old videotapes. Yeah, we'll put them up. We'll make them playable. That's neat. Um, some of them are garbage. Some of them aren't. Uh, some of them are great. Some of them aren't. You know, some of them really uh, are barely watchable. Other ones are fascinating. But at 12 gigabytes an hour, you know, okay, I'll take it. Like, I'll take it. And obviously with audio, we're even under top quality conditions. You're talking maybe a gigabyte to get an hour. Um, fine. You know, like, great. Um, so I think it's like that. It's like, there's always going to be this like layer of like, do you need 24 hours of CCTV footage in which the only thing that happens is that a guy walks by it once at 10 PM. And do you want that to be there as opposed to, does a guy do a, and again, I can hear you. You Your brain starts to go into this theory (laughs) and, and you're like, well, wouldn't, maybe you won't know. And the answer is yes, you can do that. That's how hoarding happens. Mm Mm-hmm. You never know. We might need these 400 makeup sponges um, and, for a rainy day. Yeah, and it, and it also goes into what is you know considered um, important for doing that. I, I remember when I was I was younger, we we rented a house, and I went up in the up in the attic. The previous occupants had left photo negatives from the 60s and 70s, and I mean this stuff was was fascinating to me because it's like I'm looking into the lives of some of people that didn't 
no longer exist or have moved far, far away and whatnot. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that I think like, like, well, what do I do with this? Is this something that is even worth? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a snippet of time from something that is insignificant to almost everybody in the world, except for the people that were there at the time. And of course this, you know, this 15 year old kid looking at it, me, you know, and is, is that the kind of thing that, that the sort of like little ephemeral recordings and images and, 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 you know, writings and stuff like that, that don't really fit into society as a whole. It's not something that in a hundred years, someone might go, you know, I wonder what, I wonder what the Tookers were doing in 1972. I guess it's also a matter of perspective. Right. right when, now, well, when I, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the thing, right? Um, so we're, we are one entity and right. we have our own, uh, approaches. And so there are things that we are able to provide that others don't, um, in terms of being willing to take stuff and also making it playable and making it available. And that will work for a bunch. Um, but this, the edge cases of that is that you will always find stuff where even we are like, come on, dude. And also <laughs> stuff where we're like, oh, didn't think of it, but sure. Like it doesn't hurt us to have it, I guess. Um, we might, we might give you advice, like for instance, um, and this gets into kind of like the, the presentation issue of the archive, which is, um, we can read PDFs online. So on one level, let's say you have a run and this happens a lot. We get a run of like 15 issues of a obscure Amiga magazine that ran for 15 issues and died. On one, what people tend to want to do is upload 15 uh, magazines into one item. And then other people want to upload 15 individual items, one magazine. It's better for our presentation style for you to put it one per item. But I will also tell people, yeah, put it in a zip and make that an item as well for the people who want to download it directly. Especially if it turns out there's additional material that doesn't fit into that reading. Like, I love making a big, fat, honking zip file collection of a bunch of disparate stuff and then making a collection that accompanies it of, and here you can read individual issues and look at things and play them. Like, that's, but this is all like bending the source material to the whim of the archive. I like having pristine, it came in, thank you very much, massive collection. And then kind of piecing out a playable version so that people in the contemporary space can enjoy it. Um, and but see this, and I think it's important to note that this is all inherent internet archive bias of the archive, the the, the, the will of the archive. You know, where a company or I sorry, an archive does or doesn't take something based on the height of their shelves, as opposed to whether or not it is objectively good. Um, right. And I think you're going to deal with that a lot. I think that if you have a bunch of material, different archives and different groups have different uh, things they'll take. Um, I think if something is important to somebody, it's important. Um, I don't think that there's any situation where people can be convinced you shouldn't have this. This is worthless. There's cases where somebody thinks they have something unique and they don't. But that's <laughs> oh, yeah. just but that's just normal. Like like Edison plastic um cylinders, these they they, are, they like so <clears throat> that's a really good example. Like you'll go to a flea market and there'll be like a little stack of ancient 
Edison plastic cylinders, each one the size of a tiny juice can, um, that play some piece of music from like 1902. And you're like, oh my God, this is 117 years old. Here's the thing though. Edison made a lot of them. Yeah. Like millions and millions and millions and millions. So they're worth about a buck a piece because there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. They're like beach pebbles. (laughs) But on the other hand, you'll get this weird situation where there's all these different um, magazine issues. But like there's a a promo version that only got taken to two conventions. That one is rare and hard to find. And it would be a big deal to get it up. But the rest of them, millions. Right. And I think that's just like that's just the nature of these things. Um, I don't like to. I'll say that I don't like to be the gatekeeper. If somebody comes to me with stuff, I don't say, "Well, who cares?" I will say, <laughs> "How much disk space does this affect us? Is it is it bleeding or full of mold or on fire? You know, like is there something wrong with it?" Um, but I'm not going to be the guy who. Um, te- I'm not going to be the guy who tells them, nah, I don't like it. I don't understand it. You haven't made the use case because I'm the guy who has to make the use case all the time. So um, I think that if you find value in something, don't be surprised. Uh, Well, here's a really good example, vintage computers. Um, There are certain brands of computers and there's a lot of them. And people will 64, for example. (laughs) Yeah, like a stock 64 um, the fact is, is like for some of them, I mean, not to go off on this friggin' goat path, but I, I was not a hundred percent a fan of the thing where they made the sound card that you ripped a SID chip out of a Commodore 64 to make it go. That was my SID, you mean? Yeah. The that, was a, that was, I, I get it. I get it. I mean, if that's going to be a controversy, that's a pretty good one. But, um, like, I totally understand that there are some vintage computers that even though you look at them as valuable and incredibly precious because they're a part of you, on a pure physical way, um, a vintage computer group might say, yeah, look, we don't, please don't give us any more Commodore 64s. They might politely take a Commodore 64 in because the person made it a condition of taking the 300 floppies, but then they're going to turn around and they'll probably sell it. Well, that's, because uh, they'll use that money to to fund storing of the other stuff. Yeah, well, I, I that's that that comes to a, a, a an exchange I had with like Bill Hurd, who designed the Commodore One Twenty Eight, and I had I had broken my One Twenty Eight, and I was, you know, and, and I was trying to figure out how to fix the thing, and and I I happened to run into him at a at a computer festival, and I said, you know, this thing, you know, I kind of busted this, and you know, what what, what would you suggest? And he's like, get another one. We made millions of them. <laughs> you know and it, and, it, and it suddenly i was like yeah you know you're right these things are just there's there's millions of them everywhere it, it's yeah. not really that yeah on one level it's like you don't want to get rid of it because you know it is vintage and there's a finite number but there's a lot of them around but right and coming to terms mm-hmm. there's a problem here just because i want to take this at least here in germany the 90s was um, a throwaway society. Yeah. So a lot of things were thrown away in the 90s here in Germany, especially Commodore 64 and old hardware, old computer, old software, old floppy disks. And such, some of such things became so rare that they are so expensive 
secondhand on eBay or other places, you can barely afford them because sure. if people didn't throw them away in the 80s and 90s, they wouldn't be the rare nowadays. Right. And this is why I have a problem with it to say, just throw it away with millions of them because there will be at some point a time where there won't be millions of them. Sure. And you wish you didn't throw that single um, uh, Commodore 128 away. Right, um, but the main the main the main question there is: Will that time be twenty twenty one or twenty one twenty one? Right. Um, also, I totally get it, like in terms of what I, what you're talking about. But I'm also talking about the fact that if you have people who day in day out deal with this stuff and they realize, like, we've got fifty of these, like, we don't need them anymore. Yeah. Other people should. They don't. They're not saying they should be destroyed, but they shouldn't be treated as if. The archive needs to have them. I, again, this is like a weird thing that comes out from dealing with this. Um, people will say to me like, hey, man, I've got these floppies. And, and here's the deal with the Apple II. We'll image all your floppies. But as time is going on, we are hitting a point where like 90 to 97% of what a person gives us, we have definitively. But we're not telling people don't give them to us. We are just doing things in a way that we recognize like – this is like let let let's try to come up with um, engineering to very quickly assess whether or not this one has been done before, and we're moving towards that. Like it's obvious that our imaging software will eventually hit a registry, and we'll look at it and go, "I just looked this up. It's already out there. Don't take it." Like that's obviously where it's yeah, headed. Right. But you only get to that point after having done thousands and thousands of these. Like that's where we're headed. And um, this problem exists to varying degrees with like books and records. You know, there are records that look like they're common and they're not and the opposite. Um, that, that's mostly what I'm saying. But I, I also, I mean, I never sight unseen refuse somebody's stuff on a pure, we probably have it. I just say to them, please realize we probably have a lot of this and it will go somewhere else, but you will be rest assured it will find a home. Mm -hmm. So that's important, yeah. Yeah, so like I will do that. Um, there are people and groups and stuff that want to have an ersatz uh, archive. Like they want to have a bunch of. This is happening more and more, especially in America, where like people are trying to set up these situations where they have a whole bunch of old software, like right there, so that kids and people they're collaborating with can experience this stuff one-on-one -on -one, and it's not as important to them that it's a specific spreadsheet program or a educational title like they're just happy to have vintage boxes because it's the actual experience right. of those boxes and so they'll always have a use for these things but we will have imaged them we will have gone over them we will have you know so, like any other discipline once you go into it, you start to find out that the priorities are of a different type and the uh, the outcome and the issues are weird ones, like not the <laughs> ones you would have thought were the problems. You That's know? true. Like, That's true. oh, man, you can't put Jumpman anywhere because one company cares about it as mm. opposed to, wow, it's actually super easy to emulate this one. Like I can emulate um, – you know, really complicated consoles in the browser, but then I can't easily emulate, you know, or we, with the Commodore 64 specifically, um, vice.js and therefore vice 
has this weird thing where it will do like the person who did the compilation for our version of it, the JavaScript version. First of all, his thing, you could tell it to turn it off, but his default is as soon as it notices that it's reading from the disk drive, it turns off throttling of the emulator and just bangs through the recording as fast as possible so that it can start playing. So you don't sit there for three minutes. (laughs) Similarly, it has a setting for um, true drive emulation. Oh, for booting! Like it knows, like it automatically creates the eight and one. Yeah, like it creates the the load star because it knows, like, oh, I have a disk in me. I am an emulator sitting in a browser. People are probably trying to boot this disk, so I will do that. Like that's and, a setting. <laughs> and I, I, I exactly know who you mean. It's Richard Janicek, because we also dealt with him when we had a scene world and we wanted to have it live in in our Commodore 64 version in the browser. And I think it it's already like five years ago we did that. And at this time, the um, Vice JS was put on ice because he said nobody's interested in it, so I will not I will not continue developing this project at all. And it was us um, that that um, asked him if he could implement it, improve it, and you know um, insert stuff that we need, like 1581's emulation and support and stuff. And so it's interesting that now, thanks to us and thanks to archive.org, this Vice.js has a new purpose and now suddenly it's used for something. Yeah, I, I mean, I... Like... Um, the just for the record, the the vice person I dealt with was a completely different pe- person. But he Interesting. was, Interesting. he okay. yeah, well, because he, but he he was a very specific person. I brought him in. He banged his head against it for three weeks, and made it work. Uh, ah, so name, it's a different. So it's a different um, vice JS implementation. Okay, I thought there was only one. Right. No, he okay. took vice JS and fixed it. Ah, we. No, no, no. When we... All right, let's see. So the archive has something on the order of probably 15 to 20 platforms emulated. Uh, Things like consoles and computers and handheld games and so on. And then we also built kind of a framework for taking any set of emulators. Originally, it was just MAME. But then we added, you know, DOSBox and Vice and and so on. And every time we do that, we have to kind of hook an emulator into our system. And it helps to compile it a certain way and function a certain way. You know, we, we have to do all these little tricks. And what we discovered, what we do every once in a while, and this happens a lot, is I go, eh, it's been a few months. What don't we emulate? Why not? And I go down a rat hole I probably went down a year earlier, but I'll do it. And I'll be like, oh, we don't emulate the, the you know, the, the, the Shaggy Dog 5000. Why don't, we, why don't we do that? Huh? Well, there's three emulators for the Shaggy Dog 5000. Two of them are terrible. The third one could work, but we have to have someone do it. And in that, the, the, the grand winner of all that was the Commodore 64, where it was like, come on, we don't emulate the 64? That's crazy. What's out there? Huh. Well, here's three or four places. 
MAME doesn't emulate the Commodore 64 as good as it could. It's obvious all the good stuff is in Vice. People have been going crazy over Vice for 10 years. Oh, there's only one JavaScript implementation. It's super out of date. It super doesn't work. It has all these tricks. And finally, I had somebody come into one of our channels and go, hey, you don't do Vice for the, you know, you have Vice.js. And I'm like, well, guess what you just volunteered for? <laughs> and, <laughs> and his name was SGO. And SGO spent three weeks, day in, day out, compiling it, finding errors, fixing problems. You know, we upgraded it to the most recent version of Vice. But the most recent version of Vice did a bunch of stuff that didn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so we pulled it back and then we implemented different things and then he was using it. And once we got it working, he was like, it should really speed up when it's booting. Okay. Okay. Well, now it does that. Okay. And maybe we should add this. Okay. Let's do that. And we got it working. And once it started working, it had all those advantages that vice has, which is, you know, super obsessive emulation and it worked and um, took us forever to figure out which sound paradigm worked. You know, like it emulates sound four different ways. I love the fact that it supports multiple SID chips. Um, that just makes me laugh. Uh, there's some game that does that. There's some game that came out that emulate it will use two SID chips at once. I love that kind of hackery. Like for the seven of you who did this. We've got music support. Like, what a great way to spend a weekend. Yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got version, two in my 64. Right, creating a version of your program that, like, nine people. Yeah. And, and, and um, <laughs> you know, the IBM guys, the IBM scene guys, uh, you know, I'm thinking Trickster and, and uh, that, that crew, um, they have a lot of stuff where they'll say, hey, you never heard the, you know, sound crater 2000 plus e version of the soundtrack here it is and the reason why that exists is because the sound crater people at their own expense sent somebody to sierra or lucas arts and gave them an office and they had to go make it work so it would work with the sound crater so they wouldn't be bothering anybody so that was like this weird little thing and like nobody bought the card and so nobody's ever heard the music because it was done by one guy on spec for these companies. Um, so that's kind of a fascinating side thing to me. But the fact that the Vice emulator emulates all those insane things and lets you create these weird one-offs, uh, I just love that stuff. So um, he he got it working and it's up there and it emulates obviously the cassette tape as well as the drive. So, so as a result, you know, beautiful, um, pretty accurate emulation. It runs pretty efficiently if you have a decently beefy box. And it will do a lot of the demos. Um, and plus, of course, we can say PAL or NTC and, and you know, react to that. And, you know, so, like, it's got all the little pieces built into it. And I'm really impressed. Um, I now live in an environment or I should say a situation where I'm more or less focused on like now what now that we brought back from the dead all of these old programs that I mean a lot of these programs a lot of these demos um, the amount of effort required to get them up and running again interactively as opposed to a video usually overwhelmed 
the worthiness of sitting through them. Like it's going to take me three minutes to put together all of the components and the configuration to get this one minute demo to run. Like that was a problem. And I've taken that away at the archive. Like, here you go. Press a button. Don't have to install anything. It's just running. There you go. <laughs> and what does that mean? Like, what does that mean now? And, and I, it's that question is still open to me. That's the thing I'm dealing with now of like, what do people want? And I think what they want is they want really smart, curated museum guides to help them understand what they're looking at. Like they really want some guy, preferably with a um, European accent, to explain to him, like, here's what you need to know about the silence. And like now we get a walkthrough of the silence and go here and you can play this thing the silence did. Now the silence were trying to achieve this and this because I've talked to them and this is what they were thinking. And like I think people want that. They want like an overview with a cultural context. Right. And we, we, we leak over here to a very slight, very minor tangent I will say, which is that I – and I totally understand this – is that for the past X amount of years – I recognize pushback at an American chronicling the European demo scene. And there's a very, there's just enough strong pushback, not from everybody, but enough that I know it would be a bad idea for me to be that guy. Just enough to go, they want it to be homegrown. They want it to be people who lived and breathed this community from their youth and went to these things and want them to tell the story from their point of view. Uh, an American doing it, someone from Japan doing it, like we'll do it like we're studying an alien race. We won't get it right. <laughs> we'll we'll describe the, the visuals well and we'll describe what we're seeing, but we won't understand what drove people. Mark, and isn't I, that a I, task I, for you? Oh well, hmm, uh, I'm I'm I, I totally appreciate archiving, but I'm t mostly too lazy for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing, like I mean, I saw I thought um, I thought the Mole Man documentary was very well done. You know, I thought that a lot of uh, the stuff Hornet did actually, frankly, was pretty cool, um, even though they were Americans. But I totally get it, and they were I, so American I stay out. Demoers, of right? Well, I totally get it. I mean, I totally get it. And as a result, all I try to do is lay out a stage and a storage area where somebody who does that job can acquire them very easily and depend on us being available in the same way that scene.org and Pued and Slangpung and, and all the rest of them are available as, um, um, you know, repositories out there for people to build these narratives. But those narratives need to be built soon because a lot of these guys – lived unhealthily and they're now in their fifties <laughs> and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to disappear. Mountain Dew and, and I, Cheetos is not good for you. Long not, term. Not, not a lifetime of Cheetos for sure. <laughs> um, not Stroop waffles till dawn, but um, <laughs> you know, you absolutely, I think that's where things are headed is that we need those, those guides to be able to take things to a level where people understand what they're looking at, because it's not like beautiful stuff is beautiful. Of course. Right. I mean, everyone knows that, you know, you look at agenda circling forth and you're like, this is a beautiful thing. You might not know that there was a controversy involving the use of, you know, Vangelis music in it, 
And it may or may not matter to you, but it might matter to somebody else to go, you know, this brings up a whole situation in there of like, what does it mean when you remix, you know, uh, pop music into your demos? And what happens then with Timbaland? Because once you realize this, you need this story. Like, <laughs> no, without that Timberland, person, oh my God. But without a person to drag all of those threads together, it just becomes a big pile of artifacts and you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. You can enjoy it. You can enjoy it. There's no question. You're not cheating yourself by just enjoying the demos. Like you pop them up on a screen, you see them, they're beautiful, but I know there's more to it. And I know there's people who have done so much base work, so much difficult work to gather all of these threads. And I want more of it to happen. And I will watch from here and wherever disk space <laughs> and bandwidth can help their cause, I will provide it through archive.org. So, so that's that's one of our ne next tasks for scene world. <laughs> Organize a group of historians for the demo scene. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I think I think they're out there. I mean, you know, I mean, I find it funny that I even have any kind of a beef with garbage truck, but garbage truck would be a really good example oh, yes, of somebody I know garbage truck. Yeah. If if garbage truck was paired with somebody a little more driven in certain realms, that partnership would produce amazing things. And I think there are people who you would be surprised where like they have all the knowledge, but they find it very intimidating or very annoying to have to go, well, where do I even start with this? As opposed to somebody who's like, I am so good at acquiring and collating and writing, but I never went to a scene party. So you pair those people up and magic happens. Yeah. And, you know, th th well, I've seen that happen. Well, that is what we do at SceneWorld. We are 20 people from all over the world and everybody has different areas. And yeah. that is why we are so widespread. Um, and, and that brings me to another another thought I had. Like, all the responsibility that Archive.org had is is mind-boggling. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing even. I mean, imagine all the uh, responsibility that if... If archive.org goes down one uh, at some day, then all the saved books, uh, movies, records, programs, it's all gone. Right. So now, that I was, hope that will never happen. I mean, I won't lay full credit to this, but sometime a few years ago, I created a project called internetarchive.bak, and it was a project to go, how could we back up the Internet Archive? And I know that Brewster on the inside was a little like, what's this guy doing? Um, but it was mostly to come up with a mental exercise to go, what on the archive is convenient? Like, it's nice that we have it, but everyone has it. What stuff is unique? And what stuff is so precious and unique? And how do we back that up? Um, and my personal estimate is there's about a petabyte, maybe two petabyte. This is outside of the web archiving like outside of the wayback machine um of terms of like the actual like items like cultural items it's about a petabyte to a petabyte and a half of um of like unique to the archive like we're really the place you get it at um and i would love to see that backed up and so we used a whole system and we made a a prototype system that allowed people to do this to have it be decentralized and then like a few years later that's when we started to see this whole d-web distributed web thing 
and I'm fine with it. Like, I'm not like, oh, no, my brilliant idea. It's more like, no, this is like an inevitable idea. We need to have this thing. Um, it'll be uneven, undependable, and weird. But we need to have some contingency where it's not just a handful of machines owned by one nonprofit that maintain this one and only copy of this digital history. Right. Like, that's just a fact. Uh, you know, and we're not going to ever pretend like, oh, yeah, it needs to be locked down in our servers and our servers only. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a that's a very unhealthy approach. Um, and so my hope is more people will uh, get involved. So this is the uh, to my, my, my last bit on this, which is sure, which is simply um, you hear a lot of people say that nothing, nothing that you put on the Internet is ever gone. Like, like, you know, you, you upload something there, it's there forever. And we've seen that that's not necessarily true. You know, yeah. you, you did manage to back up GeoCities, at least. I don't know if you got all of GeoCities or if it's no, a just portion, a portion. portion. Right. Uh, but there's other things such as, you know, I, I think AOL hometown that's gone. Um, right. Um, you got that too, by the way. <laughs> did, did he? Did they? We got portions of it. Again, okay. it's always portions because right. we're, we're on the outside taking photos. Right. We don't get to get into the servers. Right, right. So so there's lots of stuff like that. And and this is stuff that, that I had a, a I had space on both of them and I used to use it to host images for a different site that I was, you know, doing stuff with. So I'm sure that most of that stuff is gone, but but to that effect, how much stuff is really in danger of being lost forever? <laughs> okay. So several things on that. First of all, obviously, one of the side effects of digital information is that uh, its attribute is that once it's gone, it's super gone. And by that, I mean, like, once a hard drive stops, it's over. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's very uh, – that's a level of brutality that a lot of other media don't share. Um, you know, VHS store goes out of business. The VHS tapes end up in someone's storage unit. Uh, 20 years later, someone buys everything in the storage unit and eBay, suddenly it's back. Right. And things you didn't know existed on VHS are back. Um, if those were hard drives, you might not get any of them back. Um, so uh, so there is that attribute. Um, when people say things are on the internet forever, what they usually mean is there's a certain um, family of things that are... Um, capable of living forever, usually in the form of memes or individual ideas. Um, if there's a screenshot of somebody doing something embarrassing, like because that's one JPEG image, it has a potential for easily being switched around. But the more complicated it gets, the more difficult it gets. So if it ends up being an interrelated website that does something, it gets harder and harder to bring it back. Over time, you will eventually lose it as it decays. That's the level of subtlety. I get it. Everything on the internet is forever. What they really mean is ideas once they end up on the internet tend to live on much longer than you would think um so so uh it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy um in terms of like a lot of the problem we encounter is like data that comes in we don't always know its value at the moment that it's there but if we don't take it now we can't ever determine its value later if it disappears and there's more and more of a move towards proprietary non-shareable uh, uh, data such that it becomes harder and harder 
to get your hands on it. You know, compare Usenet versus Facebook versus Mastodon versus, um, you know, a uh, Mattermost uh, instance, you know, like all of these individual places. Um, again, a chronicler might be able to derive um, a nice version of these things, but that's because somebody is living on it, doing this work day in, day out to keep it. But it, it doesn't just fall into easily exportable HTML and, and JavaScript files that will play forever. Um, that's kind of like where we are now, this kind of paradox. So um, Facebook has rejected ever having an export function to any meaningful amount, and a lot of functionality is on Facebook. So that's like what you're running into. So the worst thing you get with Facebook is um, you're on Facebook. I keep pulling. I try to be a good interviewee. I try to pull it back to scene issues. But like you put up a, no. a demo. No, like, it doesn't have to be go, seen. <laughs> we are fine nah, with all topics. Yeah, we're all over but the you place. Put it, you put up a demo scene production on the thing. <laughs> like, oh, man, 20 years ago, this blew my mind when it came out. And then in the comments, people will tag some of the people who worked on it because they have Facebook accounts. And then that person will come in and weigh in with like, oh my God, do you know how, do you, do you know why this is like this? That's because it's a 2d sprite. Cause we could not figure out 3d. Like the person will start dumping this unique insight, but it's all locked up in this one comment section mm -hmm. in this one Facebook group. And it's not going to end up in any archive out there. And either somebody saves all that material or it disappears in terms of no one will ever find it and it won't make the right connections. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I worry about. Um, you know, and but, I mean, also part of that is because there's so many more people on the internet now that like the pure blast of, I mean, when you're watching, you know, 200 people interact with each other in the BBS days. Yeah, sure. Of course it's easy to keep track of now, but when it's, you know, 2 billion people, I mean, there's people, we still have people on the earth who have never been on the internet, but that's changing rapidly. And, uh, you know, thousands of people are coming on for the first time every day. And so, you know, the environment has changed and trying to act like it is simply a big sheaf of papers you can photocopy uh, is just not accurate. And um, it's pretty easy to pick on vintage computing platforms of the 80s and 90s because you're able to. Just say like, oh, this person owned 200 floppies. I can, I can, Im I can image those in, you know, two hours. Done. Um, whereas now it's a lot more complicated. Um, so I think that's kind of like the paradox of stuff on the internet is forever, except when it isn't, then it really isn't. And I think that's where I think that's really the best way to put it. That is actually why I wanted to make sure that Archive.org has our interviews and our podcast. That if someday, you know, iTunes, YouTube, and all those other stuff goes away, people can still find it. And, at and your they will. Place. Someday it'll, it'll vanish because that's the nature of the internet. We saw MySpace disappear. We've seen. Orkut, yeah. remember that Orkut nonsense? Yeah, in, that was yeah, that was that famous in Brazil. Yeah, yeah, that thing disappeared. Uh, you know, Friendster is 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 not even a thing people remember anymore. You know, it's like this stuff doesn't last forever. And Facebook and YouTube and Google and whatnot they have they have fostered some extra longevity, but at some point 
it's not going to exist in the form that we know it now. And, and there is a danger that, you know, things in comment sections, you know, you know, MySpace may have recovered data, you know, images and, and stuff that people had on their pages, but the comments that people left them, do those ever exist anymore? Do the messages that you sent between, you know, you and other people on, on MySpace years ago, do they exist? No, that's gone. Well, yeah, they so, exist as copy mm-hmm. in my email inbox well, because yeah, if I you always keep, turn on notifications. If you happen to do that, yeah, but a lot of people yeah. don't. Maybe I have a, maybe two specific questions, but um, when it comes back to the Wayback Machine and I visit the old websites, then I often figured out that some, for example, PNGs are missing and they are just static asset. They are just like not like a full-fledged JavaScript page with this and that. Um, do you know why these PNGs are sometimes missing on, on old web pages? Where there's just like this hard disk that, that were broken or <laughs> maybe yeah. too specific a question. I don't know. No, no, I, no, no. I uh, think I think the thing is is that um there's a great line by Eric Allman who did send mail, which is now mostly forgotten from people about but it for a long time it was the premier way that mail got transferred between different Unix computers. And he once described the technology as a sledgehammer designed to kill a fly that turned out to be an elephant in the distance. And it turns out that a lot of the way back is that same thing, that it was like an experimental neat idea. And over time, the web has innovated into essentially an application platform. And we do our best to gather things up. But there are a lot of server-side and client-side manipulations going on now to essentially make, you know, um, cross-platform applications that, you know, like if you, you would have to have somebody, and this is entirely possible, by the way, going forward, you would have to have somebody essentially fake up using notes, the experience of using Hipmunk or another or kayak or one of these travel sites, like in like 10 or 15 years, you will have to like use the scant data that you have and kind of recreate the feel of it because there's just simply be no way to bring it back. It'll be gone. And there's a lot of other online experiences now that are depending utterly on a bunch of client side and server side experiences that we won't have. And we'll have to decide if we want to see them again, you know, like it's, it's just not going to be possible to look at it. Um, there's a bunch of experiences like that in other areas. Uh, fluoroscopes are my go-to example. That was an x-ray machine for shoe salesmen in the 30s. Kept killing shoe salesmen so they don't have it anymore. So you can't experience it, but it was a real thing. So what are you going to do? You're going to get like a little video machine so that when you put your foot in, it fakes up a little, you know, x-ray of your foot. Like, like you know, like what are you going to do? Uh, because you can't get the old thing back. And um, that's part of why videos are an important part, like um, screenshots of old websites. Uh, the Internet Archive now screenshots websites when we image them um, just to have a reference material. Uh, you can't find that on the archive itself right now yet, um, but we are doing it. Like So when you archive a website, it says, and here is a snapshot of what Chrome thinks it looks like uh, on this day, the day we grabbed it. So you can compare the two. How important that'll be, I don't know. Um, I know we must have thousands of unique rule sets 
that we have programmed into the Wayback Machine over the mm. course of the last 20 years to go, if you're looking at this between September 12th and September 17th in 2019, do the following six things to the image because otherwise you can't look at it. Mm. Like, I'm sure that's going on just to be able to make it play back. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, like, that's just a night. That's our nightmare. That's our bed. That's our <laughs> bed of bugs. We live with it. Yeah, it's it's not as easy as like press play and rec- you know press re- play and record and then later press play. Like it's just not right. that easy, and yeah. it never was. I it totally, never was. I, I totally get the idea. I was uh, also having a private project. It was just a simple WordPress site and just exported everything into static HTML to have somehow just like a copy of it available without the risk of uh, zero day. Um, bugs on, on the server sure. or whatnot, just to have a, a physical copy. And uh, i just seen uh, also how painful the process can be, just like um, having just like uh, 250 megabyte of static HTML pages and still some tiny details are missing, though. <laughs> so sure. I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, when you work at its scale, you know, we're talking about there's actually billions and billions of URLs saved on the archive. So it's, you know, they're... they're a person will say, like, I can't believe you didn't do, like, you seem to have really terrible playback of this 2004 website. And we'll be like, thanks for bringing it to our attention. We'll go look at it. But, um, you know, uh, people are uploading CD-ROMs to the archive all the time, and I am automatically classifying them in a CD-ROM section. But I'm not looking at them. And they're coming in at the rate of, like, you know, uh, maybe 10 or 12 a day of, like, CD-ROM images of software. And some of them, people will go... Like, wow, they had this rare shareware program. They didn't know. And I'm like, no, no, we really didn't. You may be the first person looking at it. That's the story, buddy. I don't have to tell you. Um, so that's, you know, that's just the, na- that's the nature of this. I'm, I'm glad to be in a position where we are flooded and overwhelmed with the amount of interesting stuff coming in, as opposed to sitting around all day hoping this will be the week we get something interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good life. Thinking about this, maybe at some point I should ask you guys to make a collection for the video versions of our interviews. At some point, sure. in case in case YouTube goes down yeah. someday. Yeah. Yeah. There's a script out there called uh, YouTube-TL. Yeah. <laughs> and um, a program called TubeUp, T-U-B-E-U-P, and it will mirror a YouTube channel on the archive. And yeah. what we do is we tend to make them not accessible. Like people will do it, but we make them not accessible unless you know the URL because we're not trying to compete with somebody's live right, right, right. YouTube. And then we will revisit them in the future. And if they are gone or lost, we'll bring them back up again. So you are you are already mirroring our YouTube channel, but we didn't know about it. We might be. We don't get everyone. Uh. We might be. Well, check check us out because yeah. I wouldn't like it to lose our YouTube videos. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like I mirrored all of Red Bull Academy because Red Bull Academy is going down, but Red Bull Academy has all these amazing interviews and 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 lectures and things, and they just lost their funding. And so yeah. I've mirrored all of it, and they were happy. Like they called me and they were like, "Oh, thanks for doing this." Wow. So I was like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah. So yeah. so where can people go to find out about everything that that you're doing and everything that archive.org is doing and how they can sure. contribute and help and everything? Okay. So the main archive site is at archive.org. I'm at um, text files on Twitter. I also have textfiles.com. 
Uh, ASCII.textfiles.com is my blog. I have a podcast out there where I just talk about stories all day. Um, the, uh, the, the email, if you want to call me or write me, is jscott, J-S-C-O-T-T, at archive.org. If you've heard something and want more information, uh, and I think that, uh, that should cover most of what people would look for. My DMs are open. I'm always up for discussing things. Um, and I'll do my best to, you know, get back to people as fast as I can. Obviously I have dozens of things waiting for me on any given day, but I mean, I do my best to, uh, reach out to folks to give them, you know, Sometimes a happy you email, ending to their stuff. Sometimes you email to me within minutes. <laughs> yeah. Depends on the day. It depends on the context. It, it, the best thing to always think about is how much are you putting on the other person? Like, I'll get people who are like, what can you tell me about the state of archiving today? And I'll be like, oh, uh, it's a book. <laughs> um, so I'll put it aside because I want to get it right. And then a couple weeks go by. And then somebody else will be like, hey, do you guys have uh, this online? I'll do a quick search. I'll be like, yep, here. Like, that's easy. That's a task. That's just that's just email etiquette. I mean, people have very people will send me stuff where I'm like, I feel like this guy is using me to write a dissertation. Like I really <laughs> do feel that. And then I'll be like, I'll write back to him like, is this for a dissertation? He's like, Well, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that's great. No, we want been... we want to preserve history. Yeah, and we will that's put links stuff. to everything that, that you've mentioned in the podcast description so that people can check that out when they're Wonderful. done listening or while they're listening to it right now. <laughs> Yep. All right. So enjoy right. enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for sitting with us. <laughs> All right. Talk well, later. Lesson journey. Yeah. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> oh well. Nice. Okay. So that was. Oh, Jörg left. Jörg left us alone. <laughs> well. Well, so but he's that was recording. Yeah. So he's... that's fine. Uh, I'm still recording too. So that was Jason Scott. Um, you can check him out at archive.org and also at textfiles.com and all the other links that he just said. Um, for us, you know us. Jörg has already left, so it's just me and Martin hanging out here. Um, we'll see you next time.